There he is. Do I have do I have to put my phone somewhere nice or should I you can see more. what if I do this way? Yeah, upside down. It was good the first way. Upside down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to figure out where I can put this thing. What what can hold it? Let's see if this will work. Yeah, if you if you want to go if you want to do live video like that, or we could just do audio. It's all up to you. Whatever you're comfortable with. I don't know. I don't think this office at my house looks quite as good as the one at work, where I have like you know RC cars and posters of Ferraris and stuff. But uh, <laughs> it, it doesn't much matter. So whatever whatever will make me come off looking better. I think uh, yeah, I think this gonna work. What we we're gonna try to do is actually go um, go live and. But we kind of already gave you the list of some questions. Yeah. Are you good with that? Yeah, I'm fine. Okay. I'm not going to be as, as smooth talking as a Spencer Rifkin or a you know Richard Saxon, but we'll give it a shot. Oh. The Richard Saxon. That's pretty funny. Wow. <laughs> giving them props. We actually, uh, well, we can talk about this. Whole I, I enjoy but, watching Richard actually, because he's, he's kind of, you know, he's different on camera and then in your interviews than he is in the office. He's usually very short in the office. Like, whoops, you know, that's no good. And you know, that's about all you get out of yeah. kind of like you do at the track or mm -hmm. you drove like crap, you know, that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then on the podcast, he actually comes up with a few full sentences, which is, which is nice. Yeah. You're yeah like, he, uh, he, he adjusts to the situation. Yep. It's like, do I have to be somewhat professional here or? <laughs> yeah. Somebody might see this. Yeah. We had a good race, uh, at the oh. psycho nitro. He was there. And, yeah. Uh, it, that race actually, um, I mean, I mentioned it actually, I was, I was going to, I was thinking about it as I was reviewing all the questions and it looked like a pretty quote unquote normal race. Yeah. Um, considering everything else I saw that you just, um, had to, uh, cancel your race in Vegas. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a bummer. It is. I mean, they were going to have to set up some limitations on people, you know, how many they could put in the building and that type of thing. And then when you looked at the numbers of the entries that that meant, it's kind of like, all right, so we got to ship all this product over there for control tire race. And then, so it was like a lot of work for, you know, maybe a 70 entry race or something. Yeah. So it was like, I don't know if this is the best idea. So, yeah, it's, it's a little tough on the racing side. I was hoping we'd be back in racing, but yeah. Yeah. You would think we would be full. You know, I was thinking we were going to be going by well, June. I was thinking that I was thinking we we're going to be able to run the roar nats. I, yeah. I thought the roar nats kind of at the end of the summer would be a possibility. And then, um, you know, I talked to, I have meetings every week with Drescher, um, Craig Drescher about Europe and Europe's far worse off than we are yeah. uh, at the moment. Uh, there, there's just nothing going on in Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, there's some club racing like we have where you can kind of keep the numbers down, but it's, it's, it's a disappointment. I mean, for people who like to get out and race and compete and see their friends, it's, it's, it's tough. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the amazing part is when you um, talk in the Sean is um, how much racing you've done. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I, I think that's what people will probably be most, not necessarily surprised, but like, like how this guy's raced a lot. 
There, there are some people that were surprised. Um, I mean, one of your questions was, you know, I started kind of racing again a few years ago and I think it was Jesse Granite or something like that came up and goes, you used to race. That explains it. I'm like, explains what? And he's like, you're getting around the track. Okay. And you know, <laughs> I, I never see you out here. And I'm like, well, yeah, it's, it's maybe not qualified as okay, but I can get around. I know how to turn left and right and I don't get yeah. confused when the car is coming at me anymore. But, um, the, the guys these days are so, so good at controlling the car. It's, I don't think what I can do is even close to okay. Yeah. I mean, and you know, obviously we get, we'll talk about this, but yeah, I noticed, um, going back in my old gene DVDs that I have and <laughs> when, uh, yeah, I mean, you ran a lot of worlds and, uh, 12 scale worlds. Obviously we're in the, the a main, would you get fifth or sixth or something like that? I got sixth in Holland and sixth in Singapore. So that was 88 and 90. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was cool. It was, uh, really neat to watch some of that stuff. What was the one that Dosik won Singapore? Dosik won in Singapore. Yeah. 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 Masami, Masami won in 88. And it's funny because before that race, um, Reedy was the team manager back then. And he goes, you got to watch this kid. And I'm like, I don't, I didn't really know Masami very well. And he's like, this, this kid's going to be great. And sure enough, he was, I mean, he was just phenomenal. He was running like two pinions smaller than we were running and still beating us. Cause he used so much power and he, yeah. I mean, his, his servo must've moved three or four times in every corner and he was really punchy, but he just murdered us. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's, I think it's pretty across the board. Everyone has a lot of, has had a lot of uh, good things to say about Masami's driving for sure. Uh, he's, he's the best. I mean, he's, what is it? 14 time world championships, something like that. That's, that's a yeah, lot. Something like that. 13 or 14. I've, I've um, kind of, fought, I mean, I'm friends with him on uh, social media and it's, I, I saw that he was going to be running again. I, mm-hmm. I don't exactly know why, but interesting. Great to have him back. Yeah. I mean, it was like kind of, I wouldn't say out of nowhere, but obviously he's not kind of quite with Yokomo the way he was and his dad, like all of a sudden's back in the picture. And you're like, yep. We'll have to get yeah. on the podcast and figure yeah, out what's going I, on. It's funny because I responded to that post and I said, oh, it's so great to see Masaki again because Masaki was at all the big races and, mm-hmm. you know, watching over all the details. And uh, I still remember I pitted across from him and uh, it was 88 in Holland. And he would, Masami would go into not a trance, but he was kind of just calming himself down, eyes closed. And Masaki was there working on everything and had boxes mm-hmm. of tires and everything was labeled properly. Um, and then Masami would kind of open his eyes, go up on the driver's stand and just destroy us all. He's the only one that I've ever seen do on the driver's stand, do these, uh, he was doing stretches, you know, he would like, and you know, everyone else is kind of like making fun of them in a way, you know, and you're like, and, and he was like, Hey, this is a pretty proven technique guys. You yeah. Know, he, might he's wanna... done stretches. He, he's, you know, kind of calmed himself down before races. I think I heard somewhere that he used eye drops uh, before the race. He'd use something cause you, you know, eight minutes, you don't blink in 12 scale. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, he had a lot of the little details figured out uh, long before any of us were paid or something like that to go race. He just wanted mm-hmm. to beat us all badly. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did it as fairly as I've seen anybody ever do it. Um, you know, at, at that race, he, he actually pulled out a box of tires and I think I was qualified somewhere in the B 
and at the time, and uh, he gave me a set of tires and he goes, these would be good for you. I said, okay, who am I going to question? Good enough for I, me. I, I put him in and I, you know, squeaked in. I think I ended up qualified somewhere around seventh or something like that. So he got me into the A by giving me some of his tires. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. Which, you know, again, how many people would do that? How many people say, yeah, I welcome the competition. Come, come race with me in the A. But yeah. uh, he did it. And, it, you know, I'll never forget that. He's, he's a really good guy. Yeah, years, years later or um, s- some other people might be like, what are you talking about? Other tires. Well, I'm just, I'm just destroying you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's also a big difference between, you know, then and, and now I think back then we all had custom stuff. We all, you know, milled our own things and we cut our own chassis and uh, nothing was box stock because the box stock car didn't fit together very well. Yeah. Um, you know, we were running lightweight bodies before lightweight bodies were offered up for sale. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, at the time Masami would show up with tires that were, different or better than everybody mm-hmm. else when we were still running, you know, SKs and greens and yeah. Uh, you know, he showed up with, you know, what we later called a Yokomo tire and mm-hmm. uh, they certainly worked better. Um, and then, you know, obviously there's batteries and there was motors and all that stuff that uh, was definitely different for the, 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 the pros. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so much easier now um, to be sort of an upstart and to be on the same playing field as say like a Spencer, that's the most recent worlds I guess we've had, but I mean, you could pretty much go <laughs> to that race and have pretty much everything he had. And now it's not, now it's really the question of, do you have it? And back then it was, you had to have it and you had to have everything else, but now yeah. it's almost all eliminated. Yeah. I mean, for me, actually, one of the reasons I kind of quit racing uh, as I was getting a little older and I went to school and you know decided I had to finish college is I associated asked me to go to, I think it was the 92 Worlds uh, in Pomona. And I wasn't really racing that much anymore, but I went and I probably ended up somewhere in the C main or something like that. But what I realized is uh, I was working for Lavco uh, around that time, which made battery testing equipment. And I had, you know, friends from different teams and we ended up discharging some batteries. And I realized that the, the Trinity batteries had like 60 seconds more runtime back then than what we were running. And, you know, you just think, well, I wasted a week here at the Worlds because I was never mm-hmm. going to even come close to winning. And I wasn't even going to make the main because their stuff was so much better. And I think yeah. a lot of different teams had that advantage at different times. There were times where Reedy had the good stuff and Orion had the good stuff. Uh, and then, you know, obviously Trinity did a good job making alliances with, uh, you know, Pat Takeda from, from Sanyo and then later Panasonic and whatnot. All right. Well, let's start with our, our questions here. Cause this is all, we're talking about stuff that everyone's going to want to hear for sure. Who is this? <laughs> yeah, Jason, we, we just went right into uh, talking here. It was, this is episode two sixteen of the radio impound podcast. I'm Gotti junior joining me. The co-host Jason Rona, CEO of J Concepts, and then we got the El Presidente of Team Associated here with us, Sean Ireland. What's up, Sean? How you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks, guys, for having me. Filling in the third seat tonight. Yeah, we had a we had a little warm up there. That was like a little tailgating. We did the spitballing. Yeah. yeah, we did some tailgating, awesome. yeah. some RC tailgating. Um, not many people get to pit across from Asami. We learned that Sean did that in 88. Um, the funny part before we start, I saw the video of Masaki. 
that Masami put up. And I'm like, he still has the same toolbox. He's got that brown, um, you know, it was a Yokomo style toolbox. I think Kyosho had them too, but you know what I'm talking about. Those, yep. that tool, <laughs> the ones it's that latch like in brown, the front. It's like brown and tan or something yeah, like that, right? Yeah, it was still on the table. I'm like, he's still got the same toolbox. I'm like, that thing's got to be 40 years old. Yeah. Um, but you don't want to get rid of your tools when they have that much experience and that many wins. Yeah. He's like, man, I'm, I'm not going to just go on Amazon and get a Plano like uh, the other guys do now. I got to go with my original. So yeah, it's good stuff. Um, uh, yeah. We, we did is kind of a little bit different with Sean. We sent him a couple questions. Of course we always get off track, which is fun. Yeah. And then, uh, but kind of at least we have a little bit of an outline, right? Yeah, and then we have yeah. questions here. Ask from, away, whatever you want. That's fine. Yeah, and I have questions here from people that are checking in on Facebook and YouTube that I'll pop up on the screen for us every so often. You guys can go answer those if you want. So, so we'll we'll start with Sean, and uh, what we talked about uh, sort of in our pre our pre game here was, um, you know, Sean obviously has done a ton of racing, uh, and you know if you haven't been involved as long as a lot of us have uh you probably don't know that but uh he was in the in in the golden the golden age the golden years of rc racing he was able to experience the wow. 80s and the 90s uh which to me seems like the golden age and uh so sean tell us how you got kind of going in rc you got you got into this and you obviously must have got up to speed pretty quick because you got some great support yeah, I uh, I kind of fell into it a little bit. My my father was always into mechanical things. Uh, he got his pilot's license when I was one year old and enjoyed flying quite a bit. And uh, when I was seven years old, he brought home a radio control airplane, and I thought that was mine, uh, Sig Cadet that he was going to build. And uh, then I realized he also brought home a U control like plastic P fifty one Mustang, and that ended up being mine. So. We ended up doing U control for a little while while he built the plane. Back then, you had balsa and uh, you know monocoat, and it took a long time to build. So uh, he started working on that, and uh, in the end, I ended up flying the airplane. He ended up being more the mechanic and would build a new plane when I'd crash it or as I advanced, he built better and better um, airplanes. So I really started in airplanes. I started flying when I was seven. Um, I, I flew with some of the more famous, uh, people in Southern California, the Williams brothers that owned a company making a lot of the, you know, the pilot figurines and stuff were, uh, some of the guys that helped me learn how to fly. And there was several guys that were, were pretty big into flying. And then my dad decided to kind of change hobbies. He kept his pilot's license and, but, you know, flying was getting quite expensive at the time. He bought a uh, Ford model a and decided he wanted to restore it. And, uh, I was around 12 at the time and, uh, we went to a Sears parking lot or Sears one day just to buy something. And in the parking lot, there were a bunch of guys with a motor home and they had the old plow discs sitting out in the parking lot and they were driving these cars around. And I begged my parents to take me over there so I could see what they were. And it turned out they were associated RC 12 E's and there were about three or four guys out there, um, running them around these plow discs. And I'd never seen anything like that before. I'd only seen airplanes. And, uh, I ended up talking to one of the guys as this young kid. And this guy said, Hey, I'm, I'm a dealer for associated. I've got one in my car. It was a ready to run RC 12 E. And, uh, I talked to my parents into, uh, getting the guy's number. And I, I probably had, you know, 
four or $500 in the bank at the time as a 12 year old kid. I spent all of it on the car. My mom told me it was the stupidest thing I'm ever going to do. I'm going to waste all my money and never uh, use the car again, uh, which is probably, you know, we've all heard that it's probably correct. In many cases, I've, I've spent money on bikes and stuff like that, that I don't use. Um, so I, I kind of got this RC car and I just played around with my streets and, uh, my best friend at the time also got an RC car and we just kind of screw around. If there was, you know, a new, uh, you know, street being put in around a house, we'd go run cause the traction felt higher. And then, uh, because of my dad being in this, uh, kind of model a group when he was building and restoring his car, we went up to, uh, I went up with my family, my mom, my sister, and my dad to uh, Briggs Cunningham museum. And we were going up with this Model A group. And lo and behold, it must have been on a Sunday. And there were guys running these same type of cars that I owned in a parking lot. And that wasn't what I expected when I was going to this museum. And uh, in the end, I never even went to the museum. I stood outside and watched the guys and talked to the guys in the pits and learned what they were doing. And I just told my parents, I have to do this. This is what I want to do. I want to race. And, uh, you know, kind of the rest is history. I was absolutely hooked when I saw that there were big racing events with timing and scoring and, you know, people that had the same equipment I did. I thought it was just the most brilliant thing ever. That's pretty amazing. Do you, have you, um, when's the last time you did any flying? <sighs> it's been a while. I, uh, I guess probably 10 years I bought some, uh, like a horizon striker when the, when lipo started kind of coming on strong and electric planes. And, uh, some of the guys, when I worked at HPI, we were getting planes and just going out and flying whatever we could as, you know, just an open field. So that was probably the last time I've, I've flown with cliff let uh, probably back in the nineties. We used to do a little bit of combat flying, mm-hmm. um, and a couple of people. So I've flown a little bit with some of the guys in the RC industry, but, but not a lot. I'm not a great pilot, but I can, you know, fly inverted and do loops and rolls and scare myself. <laughs> there was a time period where, um, Ryan Mayfield, he had planes and I just happened to be out there for the cactus or something. And he was hooked on it, man. He was like, I'm going flying. You want to go? I'm like, okay, I'll watch. And it was funny because, you know, I, I haven't flown, but, uh, I watched him and I mean, he, he probably rolled that thing maybe six feet. And then he's just like, complete vertical climb. He's like, I'm, you know, he's just like punched with his airplane as he was with his eight scale buggy. It was pretty funny. The the performance is pretty impressive these days. Um, it's, it's just like a, it's like an RC car or anything. Um, I mean, if you go watch full scale top fuel and you just go, wow, that's really impressive. And then you go watch an F 18 or F 35 or something take off. And you're like, that's, that's a different level than, you know, a top fuel car airplanes are just nuts. So, um, as far as your racing, you know, we talked about getting into that and what's kind of the highlights we talked about it at first, uh, you know, doing some worlds, but what were the kind of your highlights that you, that you like to have and talk about? Yeah, racing? I, I, I did a lot of club racing early on and tried to, I mean, back then Southern California was really the place you had to be. If you were racing, um, most of the tracks were out here. Most of the manufacturers were out here. Um, with the exception of probably like, you know, Trinity and Delta back in the days, uh, mm-hmm. most, most people right here. Um, so I did a lot of club racing probably in, you know, around 1982, 83, um, in 84, uh, I was 
kind of lucky to meet Mike Reedy. Uh, he, he went to the track a lot and was a team manager for Associated back then. And uh, he at one point just said, you know, it'd be great as if you could come back to the U.S. indoor champs in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, it's a big race we hold every year. It was 1984, so I was 15 years old. And said, uh, you know, I'll tell you what, if you buy the plane ticket, I'll pay for your hotel. And I thought that was like the coolest thing ever. So that was probably my first big sponsor moment. Uh, he sent me a box of stuff uh, that I could put together and I built a new car and uh, I went back to that race. And uh, I had radio problems every single heat. Um, car just wouldn't work, wouldn't work. And I still had the time of my life. I think I won the main by, you know, several laps, uh, cause I was probably in the last main of, you know, but it, you know, back then you'd race almost, it wasn't 24 hours a day, but you, you know, probably 20 hours a day we'd finish after midnight and then you'd have to get up in the morning and turn marshal. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was just, I was hooked. I flew with the team for the first time I met, you know, back then it was like Mike Lavico and Kent Clausen and Mike Toland and, a lot of the big names, uh, in racing. And, and of course, you know, you get to see whether it's a Ralph Birch who's still around or some of those guys mm -hmm, were yeah. at these type of events. And I just, I was in awe. So yeah. I was hooked. And, uh, you know, ever since then, I think Mike, Mike took me under his wing and, uh, helped me get a little bit faster. And I started going to nationals. Um, my first nationals was in 83. Mm -hmm. Um, um, but you know, I'd, I'd go to the regionals and the nationals and, and then if Mike would help me out somewhere, I'd try to go to another race and, um, you know, that was really kind of how I got started with the team. And, um, you know, in terms of highlights, uh, you know, I won the U S indoor championships in 88 back in Cleveland. Uh, that was pretty neat. Uh, back, back then that was the days of Christian Kyle, Christian Kyle mm -hmm. pushed batteries. If you remember that. Oh, yeah. yeah and I he watched was, the, he, the DVDs. Yeah. He was impossible to beat. He was just so fast and he figured out what to do with batteries before anybody else did. And, um, I, I probably got lucky. I think he, he tangled with somebody early in one of the races or in early in the race. And I just kind of tried to maintain and ended up getting lucky and winning it. But, uh, you know, around then was probably my peak, like 88 through 90. That's when I was kind of trying a little bit more. It's kind of when I finished high school. So I, I was in college. I had a little bit more flexibility with my time. Um, I went to the 88 worlds, uh, finished sixth there, uh, went to the 90 worlds in Singapore, um, finished sixth there again. And, you know, honestly, back then I was trying pretty hard. I was working, um, with, uh, like Kent Clausen and we had custom made stuff and this and that. And I do remember coming back from Singapore, Dosek, Chris Dosek and I went to the practice race and after the worlds, I just remember thinking I tried pretty hard and I put a lot of time into it. And I think six, the best I could expect. The other guys mm -hmm. were just faster. Um, they were better prepared or more dedicated than I was. And I was, I was in college and I just kind of said, I, I, I just gotta, I gotta finish school. Mm -hmm. And I had, I had a talk with Reedy about that time and just, I, I think I need to finish school. And he said, I think it's a great decision. You know, we've really enjoyed having you with us. You're always welcome to run for us. And we kept in contact and I still raced, but I did more oval racing probably at that time, mm -hmm. you know, where, where you'd go to Whipperwill and I just had to drive around in a circle. And that was certainly a lot easier than driving a car on carpet. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the highlights are probably Cleveland and, and a couple worlds. Um, but you know, for me personally, some of the, the highlights were getting to spend time with the best guys. So, you know, I roomed with Kent Claus and a whole bunch, uh, Tony Neisinger, when he won the worlds in Vegas was my roommate in 86, uh, Cliff Lett and I roomed together and it, it wasn't just learning from those guys, but it was the camaraderie and joking around and, 
the stupid stuff that we were able to do back then that you certainly wouldn't do today. If, you know, Spencer yeah. or Dustin was doing it today, I'd probably have to have a talk with them, but <laughs> we got away with it back then. There weren't any cameras. Yep. So, and the other thing that I noticed that's kind of, uh, there's pictures of still out there is, well, one, you have a really, you kind of had a really cool paint job. You had a cool color. Um, I don't know, it was the aqua teal, something like that. But then also your, your oval cars where you did some of the speed run stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. The speed run was fun. Um, Kent really got into it. Kent got into oval more than I did. And I was working for Kent at the time at Lavco and uh, he really liked it. And then as I kind of slowed down, I did more oval racing late eighties, early nineties. And the speed run was fun. Um, You're really building a car that you know is going to explode. The tires couldn't handle it. We were running the cap tires and they just, Mm -hmm. they couldn't go a hundred plus miles per hour. Uh, The comms would uh, on the motors would, would just basically expand and the segments would separate from each other and your motor would blow up within, I mean, we're talking seconds because we were running 27 cells <laughs> in, in some of the cars. Jesus. Um, but yeah, that it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, it would be fun yeah. to do again, actually, just to see what we could do with the technology. Yeah. I mean, and was, was it your car that had sort of the carbon fiber body or the chassis? Yeah. Uh, uh, Craig Stafford and Robert Bartlett um, were, um, both working at Nissan, making GTP full-scale cars at the time, and uh, carbon. Uh, the, the carbon shop was uh, had had Robert working in it, and Craig worked in there. He was an aerodynamicist, and those guys were in RC, and uh, they built a handful. I don't know what the exact number is. It could have been three. It could have been five of these. Uh, you know, carbon, completely carbon monocoque cars. Yeah, uh, where they made it top and a bottom with aerodynamics and everything. And I ended up with one and still have it to my day. It's, 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 you know, sitting around here somewhere. I take pictures of it every once in a while and, you know, post. Um, but we built a lot of, you know, RC 10 L's and, and whatever, and just put as many batteries as we could and, uh, had Reedy kind of working on us with motors. This is long before brushless. Uh, we were running, um, like half sub C's or two thirds sub C's so we could put more weight in yeah. the car. Um, locking the suspension because the springs would compress because, uh, you know, with the velodrome, the car would actually just start dragging on the ground because you're, you know, 100 miles per hour and the velodrome is pretty fast. But that was a fun segment to do. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, you look at some of that stuff. A, a funny story I had was we were, uh, my my friend, a uh, friend of mine, Tim Davis, we were in Orlando, uh, this was several years ago. And, uh, you know, there was a race rock, uh, you know, the, there was a, like the restaurant race rock. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Kent had, I think donated his car to race rock. Um, the, the one he went the 75.92, it was probably the more, um, stock looking car that was used for the speed run. And so anyway, race rock had that car in the trophy. So this is many years. So the race rock closed and they kind of had an auction of all the, the stuff that was in there. So we're, we're like at this auction, Tim and I and Allison and, and I'm like, and they had a, they had a Dale Earnhardt car in there too. You know, it was the, the number three, you yep. know, the good wrench car. And the intimidator. Yeah. So we're like looking around, we're like in the corner, we see this, you know, we see the car, you know, Ken's car. So 
I'm taking it up. Tim's got it. I mean, we're like, this is the most interesting thing to us now is this car. So then, and we take his car and we set it on Dale Earnhardt's number three car. Huh. We put the trophy on there and that's, we didn't care about, you know, Earnhardt's car. We were just like, Oh, this is Kent's car. You know, this is the, the 75.92 car, you know? So we're like looking at it. People think we're crazy. You know, they're like, you know, you're like, Hey, don't we, don't we get, you know, uh, Earnhardt's car all mocked up. You're like, are you kidding me? This is Kent's, yeah. you know, speed run car. You know, this is the real deal. That, that and, car had uh, its own t-shirt for associated. You remember yeah. the 75.96 yeah. t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fun because Kent used to design all the t-shirts for associated back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like when he, he set the, at the time, the record for speed, he made a shirt uh, the 1990 world's, uh, t-shirt for Singapore was my car on it. So it was the teal and orange, which was, you know, the fashionable colors back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like it's coming back. Now I see more and more yeah. teal, uh, product on, you know, p- paint on people's race cars and certainly a lot of uh, crawlers and whatnot that are teal. Yeah. And, um, I still think, you know, and that was back when you guys would make a team t-shirt for the worlds and then it wouldn't sell. So you knew who went to the worlds and who didn't because you had the shirt, right? So yeah. uh, I remember seeing that Singapore shirt and I know Paul and I still talk about it to this day. We still think it's the coolest associated shirt there is. Um, yeah. I still have a few of them and uh, I'll break one out every once in a while where I've worn one to work. Uh, I think when, uh, after Mike Reedy passed, we had, uh, uh, a little ceremony for him at West coast RC and I brought one of my, I wore one of my shirts. So I looked like I was still from the eighties and I still remember Jay Halsey <laughs> going, you jerk, you can fit in your stuff from the eighties. I can't. It was an amazing shirt. Uh, just the look of it and the color combination. And obviously you could tell the ones for some, you know, you could tell the ones that Kent was involved in because they, um, I mean, for one, they were all nice, but, you know, there was some similarities between how these shirts and colors turned out. And, um, you know, I think he did the Reedy Safari shirt, right? Yep. That absolutely. Was, yeah. The, it yeah. was kind of purple and green on yeah. a gray base shirt. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, I mean, that's a really, that was a really neat shirt. I mean, that was probably the, you know, in my day, um, uh, that was probably the coolest shirt, you know, we had in the early nineties was that Reedy Safari. And, um, you know, later when Kent wasn't doing them anymore, they weren't quite as neat. <laughs> you know, we had like the B3 shirt and the B, you know, these things, they just weren't, they weren't quite as nice, but, uh, yeah, it was kind of a cool, a cool thing. I think I messaged Kent one day. I'm like, man, we need to get the artwork for that Singapore shirt and start running those things again. <laughs> he's like, I have it. He probably does. Yeah. He's, he's kept some of that stuff. Yeah. He's like, I have it. So, um, we kind of talked about him. We got your, we were just, one of the questions was your, your close racing buddies. You kind of talked about that with Kent and these other guys, but, uh, talk about this Lavco thing a little bit. People don't today and they probably don't know about this, but I still think it's the coolest decal. I'm assuming Kent probably designed the decal. He did. Uh, and um, I, I, I just wanted the equipment because I wanted the decals. Like I'm like, I, you know, you'd see it on Cliff's car and it was like, it was like the cool hero guy decal. Yeah. It's funny. And it's, it's one that's hard to find now. So, you know, unless you're Cedric or something like that, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a little tougher to find a, a, a lab code decal, but 
Yeah. So I was working at uh, a hobby shop uh, in high school and um, Mike Lavico and Kent Clausen were two of the more top end racers uh, uh, at the time in the, in the eighties. And uh, Mike had just, I think gotten out of college or I think he just finished college and they decided to build a company called Lavco. So it was kind of a play on his last name, Lavaco. Mm-hmm. and they were going to make battery testing equipment. At the time, we were discharging at 10, 10 amps, um, so it was a pretty small little unit, but it actually counted down in seconds, and it would tell you uh, how many, well, approximately how many seconds it took to uh, discharge at 10 amps, and it held a true 10 amps, which was different from kind of what else was out there in the market, and uh, they started selling them, and people were buying them. They were, weren't cheap back then, but everybody no. had to have one because nobody had matched batteries at that point. And this is kind mm-hmm. of around the time, like what I was saying, where Christian Kyle was was beating us because he'd figured something out with batteries. And uh, I still remember the day I went up. Uh, I always took Midge Husting uh, uh, poinsettia uh, every year for Christmas and thanked the team for all the work they did for me and the help they provided. And uh, that particular Christmas, I decided to stop by Kent's house uh, to thank him. And they opened the door and go, we should get him. And I didn't realize they were just talking about adding staff on to help build some of these uh, units, these Lavco units. And uh, so basically, I went home and I quit my job at the hobby shop and I started working at Lavco. Wow. Um, originally, uh, interestingly enough, at Bob Novak's house. That's where Kent lived. And uh, we started building 10 amp dischargers and then suddenly it became 12 amp discharge or sorry, 20 amp dischargers. And then it was power supplies. Then it went into motor dynos mm-hmm. and uh, we just started making, you know, things that we felt we needed to go fast and it just kept getting bigger pretty soon. You know, like Orion needed tons of units and Trinity had tons of units and Reedy had a whole banks, you know, banks of units. We were making custom stuff for them so that they could match their batteries Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I, I probably worked there about five years. Um, I, I mean, almost every, uh, small unit I, I probably built some of the custom stuff Mike built, but, uh, you know, I, I soldered an awful lot back in the day. Yeah. I mean, I, I know I had the, the items, um, the dyno, uh, the Lavco pro dyno, right. That's yep. what it was. And, uh, you used to see it in the videos, Reedy's, you know, Reedy's using them in the videos and, uh, you know, you write down the numbers and you put the, you know, back then we had a reading motor, you know, he would write his stuff on them. Right. Yeah. And uh, yes, here's Jeff Brown, the Lavco cellmate. Yeah. That was the very original one was the cellmate. And I remember they originally had- shiny black. Yep. And they already had fingerprints all over them. The battery <laughs> would die like, you know, in a couple hours. <laughs> the first ones were the very first batch was a, a little crude. And then it kind of went to what this kind of like blue grayish color. Yeah. We went to a, we went to a brushed gray um, because Mm -hmm. they didn't look dirty all the time. We literally were carrying a can of pledge in our boxes. So we kept them clean. So people wanted to buy and they didn't look all messy. Yeah. So you went to that sort of brushed matte look and then it didn't get fingerprints on it. Right. Yep. And that was neat. You know, it kind of had that feel to it. Like when you, when you touched them, right. Like there was that brushed feel, it wasn't shiny, like, um, but yeah, there's really cool equipment, really neat. Um, it was just something that it seemed like, you know, the fast guys had, right. Like it was, it had this, this idea that it was like, you know, it was real special or, you know, exclusive to the, to the fast guys. 
yeah, it did feel um, special. And, and, you know, I, I, at the time, you know, there were magazines, um, there wasn't any social media and there, you know, we didn't have a website or anything like that. Uh, and I, I just remember when people would see it, they would really have this feeling like I have to have it. So yeah. I, I always had my own personal ones that I would build. And I, I still remember going to races. Uh, we went to one in Washington, DC, and there was some guy just like, I got to get one. I need it now. And Ken just goes, uh, here, take Sean's and, you know, just would sell mine. Yeah. So the joke became that I always had the newest one because every race I went to at the end of the race, we'd sell mine and I'd go home and build a new one. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, there's, it's, it stands today, right? You always go to race and go, Oh, I got to have that piece of equipment that, that mm-hmm. will make my life easier or it's just cool. Um, and for sure the cellmate was one of those things. And I remember being in Reedy's office. I mean, all the way and he had those matchers behind his his desk there on that table and they just like stretched across and i think did he like only do the team stuff in his office or was that like everything yeah he he did he only had a few units in his office and he did the team stuff um okay. and then he had a whole separate room that was kind of over by where randy like where they used to pull the bodies yeah and it was air conditioned and whatnot but it had like just racks and racks of big units there you know if you if you think about a cellmate it was probably maybe 10 times wider than a cellmate and it would do multiple units at a time so he basically i think do one cycle i mean they were getting pallets of batteries at the time they'd put a cycle on then they pick the best ones and then the best ones go to the team side then he'd retest them and if you remember that he always had something written on the cells yeah and uh you know sometimes your name was on them um yeah. which was cool and uh yeah he, he'd always kind of watch over those and make sure the best cells um were in his possession so uh you talked about kind of slowing down and racing you got um you know a little more into you know finishing school and college what was that what was that like kind of getting out of the racing side and kind of getting more serious about, about, uh, school? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a little bit bittersweet because at the time I, I really just thought, you know, I'll just slow down and racing, finish school. And I didn't know what I was going to do in life. Um, uh, while I worked at Lavco, I got an AA in electronics, um, just so I kind of understood how everything worked a little bit better. Mike was a full engineer. Um, but learning about some of the components was neat, but I kind of figured out pretty quickly. That's not really what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, so I changed majors and went into business and, uh, figured it was pretty broad. I could end up anywhere. I didn't know which industry I would, would be in. I I took up golf when I was in college and thought, well, maybe I'll go into the golf industry or something like that. And, uh, but I was a little bit sad to see RC go, um, or slow down. And, you know, I finished school and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I, you know, interviewed with the golf companies. I put resumes out and at the time, you know, I had a degree and nothing to do. Uh, Kent Clausen had just started working at HPI and, uh, said, why don't you come up and meet the owner and drive one of these cars that we're going to release, uh, you know, next year. And I said, all right. So I went up and, uh, met Tatsuro Watanabe and, uh, they said, Hey, come out in this parking lot and drive this car. And it, what it turned out to be was it was a prototype for the RS four. So a four wheel drive touring car. And, you know, I came from 12 scale foam tired, two wheel drive, you know, cars yeah. that you could never drive in a parking lot. And Ken and I were just talking to each other. Like, 
this this is the future of RC. I mean, this thing you can actually drive and you can slide it, and it looks real because th- there's actual suspension. And um, you know, Kent was pointing out to me all this stuff, and I was just kind of concurring on this. This could really big be big. Yeah. And uh, you know, at the time it, it, when I first drove it, HPI probably had a few people working there. There was, there was like a you know Akira and Kent and Tatsuro and his wife, and that was about it. Mm-hmm. And Tatsuro just said, "Hey, you know, there's a big market for painted bodies in Japan. Would you want to paint bodies for me? And I'll, you know, you sign them and I send them to Japan. So kind of like an Andy's uh, RC." Mm-hmm. And I said, "Sure, why not?" So I'd spend a day taping off bodies, and then I'd spend a day painting. And you know, every week or two, I'd just bring up you know hundred bodies, and I'd give them to Tatsuro, and he'd ship them to Japan and sell them for a ton of cash. <laughs> uh, and, you know, obviously that wasn't where I wanted to go, but, uh, one day I was dropping off the bodies and, uh, Tatsuro said, would you like a, a real job? And I said, yeah, what are you, what are you talking? And he said, I'd like you to come work for me. So that's how I kind of got through school and into sort of back into RC, I guess. And then it was kind of at a different era, right? Like now you're starting in this, uh, at HPI, you're also, you know, very, you know, touring car on road. Uh, that's when that thing started that that class and that segment really started to take off yeah I, my timing was really good um i started there in 95 and uh, they had already released their two-wheel drive uh, their formula one car so it was just like a pan formula one car um and i started uh, maybe a month or two after the rs4 was released so that was their first touring car and it it was you know, it went berserk and, you know, by berserk back then, you know, if you got an order for 500 cars, it was like, we we're going to sell, celebrate at Morton's for dinner or something like that. Yeah. Cause that was the biggest PO we'd ever seen. They mm-hmm. were selling wing buttons and, and, uh, you know, little, little parts for cars back then. And yeah. all of a sudden we were getting orders from Hobbyco for hundreds or whatever. And we would kind of cheer in the office. And it was a really, really fun time because we would go, you know, their sales are pretty low when I started and, and, you know, we were doubling or tripling sales year on year and we were hiring people as fast as we could. If they were good, they'd come on board and we'd get them set up and we moved several times in a few years, you know, uh, from, you know, a couple office building to, uh, gosh, we were, you know, like when, uh, icon is 40,000 square foot building, uh, 45,000 square foot building. Um, so it was really fun to go through the growth where it's just kind of seat of the pants. You got to figure it out yourself there's no playbook for this. You, you just got to keep going and, yeah. you know, hiring engineers and hiring customer service staff. And it's a really fun time. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. And and they really, and, and it really hit right that that touring car had to be one of the first, if not the first one. I think there were a few that were before us. Um, I don't know in the United States. I don't know how many were really around, but in Japan, certainly there were some other touring cars that were before us. Um, the difference probably with HPI at the time is that really it was actually an American company, even though the owner was Japanese. He started it um, in the United States. Um, we did have a facility that was in Japan originally. Um, and it was big. And we, we would really like kind of, we'd have long drawn out meetings over what body are we going to make. And uh, we realized that you, you could have a good solid chassis, but if we kept putting different bodies that people wanted on these cars, they would buy them. And we, you know, started making the bodies in house ourselves, and uh, we ended up with you know six QVAC machines just making bodies all day long. 
Yeah. Um, it was, it was really, it, that was like the second golden era, right. You know, mm-hmm. where things yeah. were just booming and, uh, I wouldn't say it was easy, but it's certainly easier than it is now. Yeah. And, um, and he figured that out. That was kind of like almost the next generation of the Tamiya model, which was, they were taking all these different chassis, changing the body, reselling the car as a different car. And of course their kit boxes and their packaging was so, you know, kind of unique, but but that was kind of the next generation of that model that they had going where, Hey, the thing inside the body is somewhat the same, but the outside's changing and that's what you're buying. Yeah. And it's, it was a big part back then, back then everything was licensed. So, I mean, we probably had 30 or 40 licenses from all different companies that you had to maintain and you you know how much fun that is. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But it, it was a big part or big reason for the success um, it was really kind of stage one of when I was there at HPI and really got us to the point where we had a little bit of money to spend on molds. I mean, the story I heard, I think from Tatsuro was, uh, he spent so much money on the molds. If that thing didn't sell, we were out of business. I mean, it was a big gamble and you know, he yeah. just, we wouldn't have made it if we couldn't sell it. And, uh, you know, it gave us a little bit of play money and that's where we, you know, could do different things. You know, we had several nitro powered, uh, cars and, um, you know, really, I guess after the T-Max came out, we said, well, that's pretty cool. That's a good idea, <laughs> but, uh, let's invest some money. We made the Savage, which was a big block, you know, a little bit bigger, bigger motor. And, uh, you know, that took off. And then you know, we had a lot of product, you know, the, the Fiskel Baja, a lot of really memorable products came from a team that just was passionate about, you know, what would be cool. Thad Garner, right? Thad Garner and I used to always say, what's the fun factor? And yeah. if it had a high fun factor, we all went out behind the building and we drive it and we thrash it and then we go into some dirt and just drive it. And if it had a high fun factor, we, we felt like we wanted to make it. Yeah. No, I mean, that's pretty incredible. Uh, you know, kind of how influential that little run, not really little, but that run of products from the RS four to that Savage. And, uh, and I, and I'm sure that the Savage is probably really the only vehicle that probably, you know, knocked at the Traxxas and the Team Max in terms of the numbers and popularity. And it probably had, that's got to be the only one that was near them, right? Well, at the time, I would say, um, you know, kind of really like the early 90s, or uh, sorry, early 2000s. You know, I think HPI was probably the number two in terms of chassis. I think we were a long way behind Traxxas. Traxxas has always been ahead of the rest of us, but. Um, yeah, I would say if there was anybody that they probably took notice of, it w- it was HPI at the time. Um, we just, we had a lot of product and you know, we'd make it and we, at the time didn't, it didn't seem that hard to sell some of the stuff. We always had problems, you know, buying the correct amount of inventory and stuff is, is always a struggle. Um, but yeah, I, I think we, we did pretty good. I mean, when I started, I think I was the ninth employee. And at one point we had upwards of 80 employees in the U S we had probably another 30 something in Europe. We had to start a whole new. Uh, company in Europe to service everybody. And, um, we had a location in Japan that probably had close to 30 people. So we had a lot of employees back then. Um, and, you know, felt like we were firing on a lot of cylinders a lot of the time. Yeah. And I think what really stuck out to me too, and I'm sure this is, you know, with Kent's and your influence was how nice, you know, that was still the, the age of the magazines. That was the age of that. The look had to be right. And, um, and and it seemed like Kent and or you guys or whoever the team was there, they kind of nailed that look. 
Yeah. I mean, there, there was, obviously it was a big team, um, but there were some really, really influential people. Um, Akira Kogawa. I mean, he designed a lot of the Kyosho cars in the early days, started designing when he was 18 years old, I think, um, worked for auto model Kyosho. Uh, he had a lot of input in how the chassis would look and how they'd function. And, um, even the Savage was, it, it was really more like a flat pan chassis when it originated. And he said, Nope, we got to do something different. And we came up with what we called TVPs, twin vertical plates mm-hmm. at the time. He was really a big influence and, you know, he's still a huge influence in the industry today. He's designing stuff for Kyosho. Um, and you know, Kent has a lot to do with styling, whether it's t-shirts you were talking about or the yeah. logos. Um, he ran, you know, basically all the graphics team. Um, and the marketing team and kind of made the look what it is today, changed the name from HPI California to something that didn't sound quite as, as hokey to the rest of the world. Um, and then there's people like, you know, Yoichi was the guy that made our, all our bodies. He was a mm-hmm. Japanese resident that we brought in and um, just did a fantastic job of taking something that didn't have the correct wheel bit base and width and height and made it look kind of right. So you could make a Honda Accord still look okay mm-hmm. on a, uh, a touring car chassis or a 911 actually looked like a 911 because we didn't have like really variable wheelbases or widths at the time. It was 190 or 200 millimeters and that was it. Um, so, you know, those were kind of the core guys that really looked. And then everybody of course had a team under. Oh, I lost them there for a little bit. I think, work. Oh, you're I back. Think we're back. You're back now. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Um, Disappeared. Got a call, right? Got a call. I got a call from work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they don't, they don't know I'm uh, moonlighting right now. <laughs> Tell them to cut it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Actually we had a uh, comment here from Brad Geck. Right there it is. Oh yeah. It's, it's the, boss. the boss. There he is. Get back to work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It wasn't Brad that called, so he must be watching. <laughs> yeah. Brad's been on the show. He did a great job with the element stuff, which we'll obviously get into, yeah. uh, you know, his, I listened to it. That. Yeah. He, he's somebody that doesn't really, enjoy being in front of the camera or on the microphone and i listened to it and i thought why the heck doesn't he He did an awesome job he did he was pumped and um he was pumped on it and i think that makes a big difference um i think you have people i think you had to uh change his extension number though because i accidentally (laughs) gave it out on the air (laughs) oh did you (laughs) he said he had over 30 voicemails You know, he, he's a pretty easy guy to find. He, he's he's one of the uh, he's one of the few people uh, in in the industry that will go on and answer almost everybody. So you know, if you see him or ask him a question, he follows up uh, probably better than almost anybody else. Uh, so yeah, he he gets hounded by everybody. And uh, when we release a new car, every, you know, everybody wants one or they want a deal. And so uh, yeah, I feel sorry for him in some ways, but uh, he, it's because he does a good job. Yeah, it was funny because he was like, you know, you know, I'm thinking too, I'm thinking, I mean, if you hear the extension, you know, on the air, it's like, well, what's the big difference? You know, it's like you could probably call there and kind of luck into the extension. And and it's like, that was the first thing Gotti mentions, like, man, I left that in there. I don't think that's going to work. And I'm like, ah, it's I'm like, it's not going to matter. And I'm like, a sushi is going to be mad at me. <laughs> yeah, Brad, Brad mentions it to Gotti. He's like, I knew it. I sh- should have took out the... I was like, man, I didn't think anybody would call, but Hey, that's kind of cool. I'm like, you know what? It was a good test. Yeah. You know, people were listening. It, it, people are listening and they do pay, pay attention to the details, right? We're racers, right? You don't, you don't yeah. get, get to be a good racer without paying attention to details. Right? Not at all. <laughs> uh, so anyway, we're, you know, that 
uh, we talked about the HPI and, um, you know, obviously there's a lot going on there, but eventually, um, you were ended up with a horizon, right? Yeah, I, um, well, in a roundabout way, yes. Uh, so after my tenure with HPI, I said, uh, I'm going to start my own company. And, uh, you know, because it was so easy at HPI, right? Um, and uh, I ended up working with Akira. Uh, so Akira was the lead designer at HPI, and he and I worked on some designs and started getting a business ready to go and uh, designed some products. And, you know, then it kind of smacks you in the face how expensive it is to tool up uh, vehicles where you need you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and you got to buy inventory and everything. And I, ended, I, I, I had already had a little bit of a relationship with some of the leadership at Horizon. Um, they offered me a job like the day after my, I, I left uh, HPI and uh, I, I kind of went back to them and said, would you be interested in working together? So they ended up buying the drawings uh, from us and hiring me. And uh, my company was called Pure RC at the time. It was never advertised or anything, but it was all registered and whatnot. And, uh, uh, that turned into Viterra ultimately. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, anyway, I, I did take a, a, it was kind of a short stint with horizon about two years, uh, worked in their marketing uh, team and we kind of, they were going through a lot of transitions and, um, you know, there was electrics and that went to, to ECX and it was used to be team Losi and mm-hmm. then it was TLR. And then what do we do with Losi? And, um, there was just a lot of change going on at the time. I think it's also about a time where the industry was maybe starting to soften a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I worked with them and, um, almost all ex- exclusively in marketing, but I, you know, I went through and talked to the customer service teams and the sales teams and got to know a little bit of everybody. Um, and, you know, worked with some really great people, uh, Todd Hodge. I, I mean, I knew of him, but I didn't work with him until that point. So I got to know him a lot better. And Frank Root, who was actually relatively new at the time, I think he had worked at PCH hobbies, something like that for a long time yeah. and yeah. then joined. Uh, so I got to work with Frank, get to know him, him better. And, you know, George land was always an icon in, in Europe. And I got to work quite a bit with George and talk to him and visit him in England. And, you know, mm-hmm. it took me around shops throughout Europe. And, um, but Joe Ambrose had a big influence on me, his, his, you know, calmness and his style. And he was just a really intelligent guy. He was a lawyer, worked at, you know, with bankers, and, uh, you know, he, he helped me a lot with just looking at his style and some of the things he'd say to me when I, after I said something, I thought, ah, damn, he's right. Um, you know, like, you know, everybody has a boss, Sean, even if it's a bo- you know, bank, they're your boss, you know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I can, I worked with Chris Dickerson a lot. He's the, um, he's now the, the president and CEO of Horizon. Um, so we shared an office at one point, we traveled together throughout Europe and, um, I see a lot of uh, Joe Ambrose now and Chris, and I can mm-hmm. see kind of the progression of leadership. And, um, you know, these guys, are, these guys are pretty good. When you have hundreds of employees that you're managing, um, you know, you've got to be a good leader. Uh, it doesn't help to just be smart or something like that. And, and you know, I, I took a lot away from, from Horizon in that respect. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. I mean, I was uh, last year we did the, the H, um, was the HCP? convention uh, yeah back in back in june when i saw you yeah there. yeah yeah we did that and uh he had a you know he was there at that time right or was the the year before he was there joe was probably there the year before um oh. joe was there two years ago last year was the first year since joe had passed yeah yeah and joe's sons were there yeah and so i was there the year before when he was there and doing his speaking and stuff and yeah i mean just a little bit i've talked to him i mean i've been horizon before and you know he kind of comes in the meeting for a little while and and um, 
like you said, very kind of, um, yeah, not an aggressive guy, just, you know, he's not in your face street outlaws. No, <laughs> you know, he, like, he was, he was a real person. And, you know, I have a really funny story about him. I was, I was, I interviewed with him for Horizon multiple times. I interviewed him with him in California. They flew me back there twice. Um, and you know, there's a whole bunch of other people too, but, um, you know, he, he probably ultimately was the guy that had to make the decision whether we bring this guy on as vice president or not. And, um, after I got hired, they basically said, we don't want you to come into work for a couple months. We're going to give you a list of questions. We want you to answer them. We want you to make a you know, presentation as to how you think we need to, to go forward with, uh, the surf. You still there? Yep. Yep. Okay. We lost you though. with yeah, with the back. surface brands. And uh, I made this presentation. And at one point I was talking about going out and visiting dealers. And I said, listen, these dealers, they don't wear khaki pants. Why are we wearing khaki pants? And of course, Joe had khaki pants on that yeah. day, right? So it became kind of a joke that, you know, I decided, I, I thought we were putting people on the, their back. Yeah, I think it's on Sean's end. Somebody's trying to call him, I think, or something. I heard road noise. There we go. Are we back? We're back. All right. Sorry about Perfect. that. No, right. Darn technology. No worries. <clears throat> so let me, I don't know if you guys can stitch this together, but I'll finish that yeah. story if, if I can. So, so this is like a few months had passed and uh, Horizon has these big meetings every quarter called quarterly business outlooks. And uh, I was sitting in uh, the, one of the desks and Joe Ambrose came up, sat right next to me and, you know, somebody's presenting and there's, you know, PowerPoint displays and everything up on the wall. And he just looks at me and goes, I'm still wearing my khakis. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought ah, that that's pretty cool. That's, he remembered that. Wow. Mm -hmm. You're like, you know what? So am I. <laughs> yeah. I was forced to wear, you know, pants back there. I, I wow. roll into work in shorts, you know, the, the, so, well, you're in California. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, obviously a, a good experience kind of, um, set you up. So, I don't know if there was anything in between, but, you know, kind of the way I had it written down was the transition to Associated. I don't know if you want to fill in the blanks or talk to us about going into Associated, which is kind of interesting because you started racing with Associated and Reedy and all this stuff. And um, it took you all that time to kind of get back to where you started, right? Yeah, it, it, it took a while to get back. Um, I had kept in contact with Cliff Lett, uh even during my HPI days, he and I would talk, uh, you know, periodically and, uh, we were, you know, our buildings were only a few miles apart. Um, but after, after, you know, I kind of was not at HPI anymore. And even through my horizon days, I'd talk to Cliff every once in a while. Um, and then it kind of get more and more where, you know, we'd have lunch maybe a couple times a year. And, um, you know, he, he at one point said, you know, why don't you come join me? And I said, no. And then, uh, he kept asking and asking and, and really in 2015, uh, he just, he made kind of the last offer and said, why don't you come on as vice president and, uh, you know, help me out. Um, you know, he's, he's sort of the classic engineer, loves the engineering side. And, um, you know, he said it to others, but, you know, he was sentenced to the sort of managerial role. He, he likes working on cars and that's what he was good at. And you, you had the fortune to race with him. You know how his mind is yeah. when he's thinking about a slipper or, or, you know, how to set up shocks or any of that stuff. He's, his, his brain just keeps going and going. So, so I agreed. And, um, you know, he's been really great. Um, he basically opened the books straight away to me and said, here's all the stuff. Here's the good, here's the bad. Um, let's work together on the stuff. And, um, 
you know, it's HPI and, and associated aren't too different in terms of how the businesses run, you know, they're mm-hmm. the same basic stuff. Uh, it's just different people and different products. So, um, I think I picked up a lot of it. I knew a lot of the employees before I even joined, yeah. uh, which was, which was, was pretty nice, I guess. Um, it felt like I was coming home. So yeah, we often say I didn't start at associated. I came back to associated and, um, you know, I, I really think it was a pretty easy transition to be honest. Yeah. And it's really neat, you know, um, from that standpoint. And now, um, you know, obviously, like you said, um, you know, Cliff got put into that position, uh, being the president, which, you know, he went from designing stuff and being, uh, working there in that side of things to being the president where you're talking about now you're, you know, working on health insurance and that type of thing. And, um, you know what, and, and that for me, that would be, I would absolutely hate it. Not that anybody likes it, but, um, but you know, it's, somebody has got to do that kind of stuff. Right. And, um, yeah, I mean, whether it's sales tax for, you know, the state of Florida or Illinois or whatever, I mean, that stuff's fun to do. Um, you know, health insurance is not fun to do, but it, it has to get done and has to get done competently. The employees need it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of unfun stuff to do. You know, a lot of people think when I see them at the track that we work on the cars all day long and want to yep. know the details on what's coming up next. And, you know, there are plenty of times where I'm not really sure, you know, I know basically what's going on. We do have uh, engineering meetings every week and, uh, you know, I have a good idea, but I don't certainly know the details like the engineers do. Yeah. And that's obviously their job, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and, you know, put them hire good that. people and let them do their job. Ho- hopefully. Yeah. That's, that's the, that's the hope. And, um, so, so you did in 2015, you started, um, and recently, I mean, there's not really been a big release about this, but you're the president now, right? Yeah. Last year, um, I became president, uh, you know, like I said, Cliff and I worked side by side on a lot of things for the last few years. Um, and you know, last year he just said, basically, I, I think you realize you were doing a lot of the stuff that a president would do. And, um, he, like I said, like he really enjoys working with the engineering team and not having, um, you know, we had a couple new engineers that joined us that were, uh, that are still in their twenties and uh, we always call them green. Um, so they're great guys, classically trained, but we have systems that, you know, need to be learned and it takes a while. And, uh, you know, last year was a weird year. We found out in January by, by chance when a realtor showed up and said, Hey, Hey, you know, we want to show somebody your building. And we said, what are you talking about? And we, we learned that our building was going to be sold before our, our landlord even told us. Um, so Cliff and I started looking for buildings and, uh, we couldn't find a building that was suitable in the area. Um, so then we had to interview third party logistics companies to, to help us ship product. Um, we had a new brand that we were getting ready to launch. All this stuff was going on. We had to move over the summer. We had the world championships in Slovakia coming up, just like everything felt like it was crushing us. And, uh, at the end of it all, you know, after we got moved and finally I could take a breath, Cliff just said, um, we're going to put my office downstairs with the engineers. And, uh, so, you know, we, we had offices right next to each other. We talked through the wall all the time. We often joked we needed to put a window in. Yeah. Um, and we separated and, and he's got, uh, he's got different responsibilities now. It's probably more similar to what he had in the past. And I've got new responsibilities now, and it's probably more similar to what I had at HPI. Um, and I think it's working pretty well. Um, 
He's he's dug back in. We've got better schedules than ever. We're releasing more product than ever um, this year, and uh, we're both probably where we should be. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, and that was kind of you know on the list of questions I had here. Um, we we got the you know when we had Brad on the show, you know he kind of dove into it a little bit how you know, you started the new brand. You just talked about that with, with element and kind of how you had to go back and um, start with associated electrics and say, all right, now, you know, there's Reedy, there's team associated, there's element factory team, whatever. And um, talk to us about kind of, cause obviously that was a big project that you kind of did during all this, I'm sure as well. Um, how, you know, what was the mindset about this and kind of getting into this element side of things? Yeah, we, we did do a lot of rebranding and um, some of that actually may have come about from my my stint at Horizon and learning about branding and um, how they felt, you know, a house of brands or a branded house would, would work. Um, and then when I joined Associated, there were lots of just little things that kind of bugged me. Like we didn't have a uniform email address, you know, for us all, you know, somebody, you know, somebody had their first name or it was a, a dot afterward. And I thought, let's clean this up. And everybody, you know, it'll be easy for you to surmise what my email address is if you know somebody else's. Um, but then you just looked at things like uh, the classic slot car track AE, where it would say team associated. Mm-hmm. Well, AE stands for associated electrics. Why team associated was on there is because we only had one brand at the time, but you know, over the course of years, you know, Reedy came on board, um, Cliff sold RCPS to Associated and, and became factory team. And then we were at this next stage of our lives um, and we were going to create this new brand called Element RC. So, yeah, there was a lot of talk in our marketing department about what did the brands mean? What was the heritage? What, what made people like it or dislike it? How would we market it? And why do all the magazines and everybody, why do they always call it team associated, even if it's a factor team or Reedy? And will that happen to Element? So we, we did kind of go through a concerted effort to say that that slot car track, we brought that back. That is our heritage logo. Associated Electrics is our company. That's our official name that's registered. Um, and that's how we pay taxes with that name. So that's our name. The brands are the other four. So team associated is our racing brand. And then uh, Reedy was next. That's our electronics brand. And then Factory Team is our option parts brand. And then this new brand, LNRC, which was going to be more our venture-based brand. So crawlers or scale, you know, trail, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we didn't, we were trying to kind of keep people from calling it Team Associated because it's a different brand promise. Mm-hmm. Um, but we still wanted people to realize, hey, those guys from Associated Electrics that have built, you know, now 30-time uh, world champion cars, and 30-time Reedy uh, World Champion powered cars, those guys are behind Element RC too. So that's yep. kind of what we were trying to do. And even after we did it, there were still some kind of hiccups, and we'd have to call somebody and say, "No, it's not Team Associated. It's it's <laughs> Element RC." Yeah. Um, and I still see Team Associated and and Associated Electrics kind of used interchangeably, but we're trying to train um, people what it is. It's it's one company with four brands underneath. Yeah, I still kind of do that when I go to type it in. Um, to the browser, you know, I'm like, team is a no. <laughs> yeah, we'll get you there because we, 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 we yeah. uh, type it in and now all four websites are kind of on one platform. So you can go back and forth between the four brands if you want and, uh, you know, easily buy, uh, 
a, a car, a radio, an option part, and a crawler for your kid or something like that if you want. You can do that all in one shopping cart. So you can still get there. We try to make it easy, but um, having everybody stop calling it Team Associated has been the harder. And then um, there was RC10.com. That was the first one I used because yep. I was like, that's the shortest one, right? And <laughs> it's the one most people use. It's if, if you're old school, then you use RC10.com. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's tough because then I'm sure in these meetings, you're thinking, all right, well, is RC10 really our heritage, right? You know, you're like, is that, you know, that's we, like such a huge, uh, I mean, obviously it's part of every single, I guess, racing product. It, it says RC10. Every 10 scale one. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you go through the B6.2 and it still has RC10 in the front and yeah. uh, it is a big part, but it's not, you know, let's say for the next 50 years, kind of the thing. Uh, yeah. I think the thing has to be the heritage and all the people and the wins and the team and the people that have supported the Associated Electrics brands um, over the last 50 some odd years. So, you know, we put, you know, I have my list of questions here and, you know, we talked about several times when you come out to the Reedy race, you did some, you've been doing a little bit of racing here and there uh, with the B6 and different cars and getting out and uh, running with some of the guys. What, um, you know, kind of jumping right back into it, what was your, you know, feelings about racing today versus, you know, maybe when you left racing or maybe at the height of your racing powers, I guess. Yeah, it's, um, it was fun. I, I think it was, I'm guessing around 2013 or something like that. And I, like I said, Cliff and I would keep in contact and go to lunch every once in a while and just talk about what each of us were doing. And, uh, at one point I just said, I got to get a car. I just got to try it. And the only way you can go racing these days is off road. There's not mm-hmm. a, a ton of on road. And that's what I was as an on road driver. So I never experienced getting the car in the air unless it was hitting a dot. And, uh, he said, yeah, I'll take care of you. And then like a week later, I got a full like team package from Brent Tilke. He sent me like all the option parts and everything and just said, Hey, I found this, uh, here it's for you. So, I mean, I hadn't built a car in probably, you know, 20 years or something like that. And at the time, Stephen Hartson built it for me. Yeah. Uh, I soldered everything up cause I'm still pretty good at soldering. <laughs> and, uh, I thought I'm going to walk, I, I built, of course, a mod car, right. Cause I'm, mm-hmm. I'm ready to go oh, mod yeah. racing. You're like I'm a mod racer. Yeah, I've got to. And, uh, I showed up at the OCRC and man, I struggled. I, <laughs> I was like, you know, in doing, and I, I, you know, kite the car. I just do everything wrong. And, uh, I still remember I was standing up on the driver's stand and somebody goes, what are you doing here, Sean? <laughs> and I stopped and I looked down and it was Bob Novak. Oh man. And he was laughing at me. He ended up training. I don't, I, Bob was what, in his late seventies and he's turn marshalling for me and I'm crashing like on every corner. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I really went there kind of thinking like, I'll have the hang of it. I'm not that bad, but I was really that bad. But, um, by the end of the day, I could at least get around the track and I, I got hooked. I started going, um, almost every week and, you know, it was fun just to hang out and, you know, talk to, to Nick or Jackie or any of those guys at OCRC and, um, I started seeing old friends. I started, you know, talking to Jay Halsey more than I, that I used to and, mm-hmm. and people that I raced with back in the day. And I met a whole bunch of new friends, like talked to a lot of the kids that were, were hanging out at the track and, um, met some other people that I'd never really met before. And I had a lot of fun. I, then I started kind of saying, I'm going to go there to have fun. And I'd get my car prepped and I get up on the driver's stand and you're like, I'm not letting you buy, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm racing you to the next corner. And I, I'd get in that competitive mode again, but 
yeah, the reality is, you know, these guys are fast. They're at the track a lot. They know they're set up better than I do. So I still go and it's probably more just for the feeling of driving a car and hanging out and talking to people. Um, than it is, it's, I'm just not competitive. Um, like I used to be. Yeah. It's tough. It is tough. And, uh, and, and the other part of the story is I did immediately go back and get a stock motor and put the stock motor in <laughs> because oh, it, it's a whole lot stock. easier to drive. <laughs> I did. I, I raced stock and then I raced the pro class originally and I bumped down to like whatever the mid class is, you know, the intermediate class. Right. Um, and I still couldn't, you know, I think I TQ'd once maybe in that class and I was, those guys still kick my butt. So, Damn. um, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. My oldest son came out and raced with me a couple of times. My youngest son came out a few times, ran short course, um, until they found other stuff they like to do. Um, and then, yeah, I haven't really raced too much in the last couple of years, but, uh, right before COVID hit, I built myself a new car. Uh, actually I took my old car. The new car was coming out. And I, I took my old car and went and raced with uh, several of our engineers and had a blast. And I, I really kind of want to get back into not going a lot, but, you know, at least going every month and, you know, keeping the transmitter batteries uh, charged up. Well, and I'm sure it really like, um, you know, and I, I think this happens to anybody or all of us is um, the more you stay away from it, the easier it is to stay away from it. And then yep. when you get back into it and you're doing it, you want to keep doing it. And um, so it's very tough. But when I know what I realized right away when I start running is you start encountering all the things that people tell you about, right? It's like right away, it's like a crash course and everything everyone's bitching at you about, right? That you were like thinking, oh, this is not that big of a deal, you know? And then pretty soon you start to encounter, you know, these things yourself and you're just like, okay, I can fix this. <laughs> it's it's a good, I mean, it's such a good hobby. Um, I don't want to get on a big soapbox, but, you know, especially for kids these days, you know, using the tools, getting a little mechanical aptitude, um, the problem solving that's involved. Um, I'd really love to see more young people get involved in this. Um, I mean, I never did drugs. I never had any money to buy drugs because it was all going yeah. to my, my RC habit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it, it's fun to see, uh, people learning from this and getting to know it. And, and now, you know, now that we have elements, I mean, it's a whole new world for us, you know, for those racers who are trying to get a half a 10th, a second, a lap to see people building interiors on their, their rigs and um, going in this great detail so that the body looks like it's rusted. And um, like some of the stuff we talked about Brad before that he does, I mean, taking like cigarette lighters and making exhaust cans and stuff like yeah. that stuff. I would have never thought yeah. of <laughs> it's really, really neat to see people put some kind of ingenuity and thought and um, passion into something. And, you know, it's, it's fun to have a brand. I went to uh, K and K last year back in Ohio. It was my first crawling event. Of course I brought it, you know, car to compete and I found myself being super competitive again. It wasn't yeah. on a race track, but it's, you know, points and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it makes me want to go back again and, you know, yeah. I don't want to get beat by somebody that can also drive slowly, but those guys are good. They're, you know, very technical and their cars are set up right. And yep. it's, it's a different form of RC that is also competitive. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's still a little shocking to me, but then maybe not a hundred percent, but I mean, are you still surprised how large this, uh, this scale truck crawling segment has gotten, I mean, it's, 
people still talk to me about this and I've, I bump into people and they're like, Oh, that seems stupid to me. And you're like, you don't understand like how big this is in this market right now. And, um, you know, they'll talk to us about stuff you release and projects and, and they'll, they, they don't, they don't get it. Cause they have only seen it one way. And you're like, you don't understand, like this might be bigger than anything. I, I am honestly. Um, so I knew a lot of the guys that founded Axial. I worked with a lot of the guys that founded Axial and, um, you know, they spent a couple of years doing engines and whatnot, but then when they came out with the original SCX 10, you know, you, I kind of looked at it and it's like, yeah, it looks cool. Um, but I didn't get it. I didn't yeah. know what these guys or where it was going to end up going. And even after a couple of years, um, there were a couple other companies that tried to make some sort of a crawler and, and they sort of disappeared. Yeah. So I thought, well, maybe the market's only big enough for this Axial brand and they're so far ahead of everybody else. It's not worth getting into and it's not big enough to get into. Um, but, you know, I was wrong. I mean, it's I, I have a little bit you were talking about Mayfield flying planes. And I always have this thing where I can go out and fly, but I get bored with it because there is no lap time and there yeah. is, there's, there's no corner, there's no apex to, to clip. And that was my general feeling with the crawling scene is that it, it, it I just, I, before I even tried it and then uh, Brad Geck and Aaron Lane and a couple guys, you know, took me out and, you know, had me and John Schultz as well, you know, talk, took me out and had me, you know, crawling on some rocks and stuff. And you realize there is a method to going up or going down or side hilling something. And I thought, okay, well, this is something a little more interesting than what I thought. Um, but then when you go to like a K and K and there's hundreds of guys there and you're up till 11 o'clock at night and everybody's having a great time and they're just, you know, pull up a chair and sit down and talk to you. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was a whole different thing. So then I kind of realized, yeah, I, you know, if I had more time to dedicate, um, I'd want to go there and try to finish first again. And, yeah. uh, you know, and you probably, you don't need the reflexes. You don't need the young eyes, um, but you do need to be smart. You need to think you know, a corner or two ahead mm-hmm. um, and you need to set up your car, right? All things you can do without, uh, you know, without, uh, you know, just a little effort and, and a little, you know, paying attention. I mean, um, you know, before I kind of get to the next question, you know, a lot of people ask us, we were talking about the, I think it was the last show we had this discussion about, um, older people in RC and, you know, being, uh, you know, the over 40 classes they have. And, you know, we have all these different classes in RC for people to, to race in and be competitive, but, you know, we were having this discussion about, um, you know, what's that limit to where we think that, uh, you just can't compete anymore at the level that maybe either you're accustomed to or makes you comfortable. And, um, you know, I, I honestly, I'm, you know, I talked about how it's a little surprising to me that I can still drive stuff that I'm still okay at. I don't really practice for whatever reason I'm good at it. Like I can pick up any of these cars and I can drive them. Sure. I'm no Mayfield or Spencer out there, but I'm, I'm okay. But, um, like what's, you know, people just ask, what's the difference? Why, why, you know, why is there these guys that are, you know, like the Spencers that go to the worlds in Slovakia, he's 21 years old. He's a, you know, but you know, what's, you know, what happens when you get to be 40 or 50 or what's the cutoff? You know, people are asking this all the time. It, it may be different for different people. I, I don't know what the answer is. Certainly 
you know, it's, it's a younger person's sport. If you're talking about winning world championships, um, we can see that. Um, I think it's probably even more so these days as the traction goes up and we start racing on carpet and, you know, your reactions just have to be so quick. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there is something to that, but, um, there are some, some guys that are getting up in age at, you know, Rick Hoer is maybe a year older than I am. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he still goes to nationals and does quite well. Um, yeah. uh, and I mean, I've seen him drive off road too, and he picks up a transmitter without practice and can get around the track really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um, I just recently saw on social media, Joel Johnson driving, uh, yeah, a that. car and, you know, Joel's again, maybe slightly older than I am, but, um, Mm -hmm. I mean, that guy has got more talent in his little finger than I have my whole body (laughs) for racing. And I, I, I have no doubt if he put the time in that he could be relatively fast. I mean, Ralph Birch Jr., a lot of these guys, Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I, I just don't know, uh, what it is that changes. I'm sure. I mean, I certainly don't see as well and react Mm -hmm. quite as quickly. Um, the way like some of these young guys fly the cars around the tracks and where yeah. they really turn the car in the air and still clip the apex and, mm-hmm. and, you know, don't waste time scrubbing speed in the corners is it's really phenomenal. And, mm-hmm. um, I actually had one of my, my best friends that I used to race with. I met him through racing was named Kevin Mercadante. And, uh, he, uh, had a young son a couple of years ago and wanted to go out and see, you know, what the new, brushless and lipo and everything looked like so he brought his son up and it was at the reedy race at ocrc and i stood up with him on the driver's stand and you know the cars do look faster and they do look like they handle well but when you watch you know spencer and the two ryans and and jared and all these guys like just throw the car into a corner and you know they're in off-road i mean they're within two inches of the corner almost every time and they're pointed the right way and Mm-hmm. Um, I remember just, you know, like five years ago, I was watching Cavalieri drive and somebody looked at me and goes, I think he's the only one that truly has control of his car in every like inch of the track. And you're watching him go around, like, how does he do this? How does mm-hmm. he race within a foot of Mayfield and not run into him? Yeah. Uh, the, the level of skill, um, that these guys have today is, is just phenomenal. It's, it's it really is. good. Yeah. And, um, you know, sometimes people ask me, they're like, you know, they're asking about this age, what's the cutoff? And I'm like, you know what? Ryan, Ryan, and Jared are going to show us what yeah. what the limit is. They yep. they are, and um, you know I'm 43. Ryan's 33, and Cavalry and Tebow are also 33. And um, you know, I was just watching Ryan over the weekend, and there he's not slowing down. You know, it's like you you watch his, uh, and even you know Jared won the race, won the eight scale buggy race, and um, these guys there's just something some people have for this for some reason, even like Rick Howard, like you talked about, I mean, guy's an amazing driver. Um, and for some reason it doesn't leave him, right. It yeah. doesn't, it doesn't, it hasn't left him. He stays connected enough with it to where he picks it up and he still has that great control and that great feel for what it can do. My guess too, is that uh, it might even the age cutoff, if we can really discern what it is might be different for different types of cars. Mm-hmm. I think an eight scale, you know, some of these, the older guys that have more experience probably mm-hmm. have an advantage over, let's say an 18 year old kid with phenomenal talent. 
Yeah. Um, because there's so much to strategy and knowing when to go fast and knowing when to slow down and kind of what to do over the course of, let's say, a 45 or an hour long main. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's where it's really helpful. Like if you had, let's say, an Adam Drake or Richard Saxon or something like that that mm-hmm. could coach you, I, I'm sure, you know, if Spencer was on this, he'd say, oh, you know, Saxon's helped me tremendously in, in eight scale. Um, but, you know, in, in 10 scale, he just went out and went to his first worlds and won it. And it was like, that's, yeah. you know, job done. But in eight scale, it's, I would say that it, the older guys may even have some advantage. Yeah. So yeah, whether it's, you know, Jared or the Ryans, I think they're going to be fast in eight scale as long as they have that drive mm-hmm. to compete. And, yeah. you know, knowing, I don't know Jared very well, but the other guys for sure just hate, hate losing. It doesn't matter if you're throwing darts or, yeah, you know, hoop or anything. They, they just don't like losing it. It pains them. And those guys, I think will be fast well into their forties if they want to be. Yeah. That's what it looks like to me too. When I'm out there is, um, and, um, what's, what's a little funny about to me watching Jared Tebow now is he just had his dad, uh, pitting for him, uh, at the, the PMB. And I remember when Jared started and his dad did everything, and he was just kind of the driver. And what I think is funny now is I see his dad bringing the car up on the starter box, but it's Jared telling him what to do now. You know, it's like Jared has all this experience. He has all this driving experience. And you can see he's he sets the car down and his dad kind of stays out of it a little bit. You know, he's just like, hey, I'll just pit it, whatever. Um, but back then he was doing everything, you know, he was, uh, but now you can see Jared kind of taking over and saying, you know, this is how I want the engine to be. I'm going to set that. Uh, I'm going to tell you to, you know, pit right here. I want you to be right here. I want you to pick the car up like this. Now he's really specific with his dad, how he wants things to be. And, um, with all this experience now, he's, he's almost, you know, it's, it's a, just such a different experience. I mean, I remember when he was a kid standing next to me on the driver's stand, like yelling down at his dad, telling, you know, saying there's something wrong with my diff. My diff's not working. And, you know, he's just hauling ass, you know, and it's like, <laughs> there's not really anything wrong, but he's just, you know, yeah. he's like freaking out because he doesn't know what's going on. And, and now you could see now he's the one in control. He knows what the, the, the product is like. He knows, um, you know, there's not all these weird issues that, he's making up because he's been in there now. He knows whether it's right or if it's, it's malfunctioning. And, and, uh, it's just kind of funny to see it, uh, from that perspective now. And, uh, and I'm sure he's probably has a lot of, uh, respect for the, all the wrenching his dad probably did at one point or another too, thinking, man, I used to just, you know, go talk to everybody and my stuff was ready. And now it's like, I gotta do, you know, I'm involved in all this. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of ownership now from the very, very top guys. They have to know what's in their car. They have to be able to wrench mm-hmm. on it themselves. You know, they're getting paid to race, right? So mm-hmm. you really, the blame isn't going to fall on anybody but themselves if they don't get a paycheck or a bonus check. So, um, you know, you, you can definitely see the guys that are multiple-time world champions and have, you know, lots and lots of success. They're all very, very prepared. You know, if you're, you know, looking for somebody to follow. It's, you know, like a Cavalieri. He shows up with everything on point, ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you want to talk about, you know, going with the flow and fixing your your car at the track and just digging out the fastest lap time, I mean, Mayfield's kind of the guy. Mm-hmm. And then Spencer, really, I think is kind of the new, the protege from both those guys. He worked with yeah. Mayfield an awful lot. 
and is just going to, you know, do what he can to, to win. He's got a ton of talent and, um, you know, all those guys you, you can learn from. Um, and I, I still think I, I would, you know, I'd put money on Ryan and Ryan being fast at 40 and yeah. beating a lot of these younger kids. The only question I have is when you get on, on carpet and super high traction and when all of a sudden reflexes start coming into it, you know, does like a, you know, a, a Brock Champlin start having, uh, you know, if he could race, let's say, you know, Spencer, when Spencer was 40, I, I don't know how that will end up because the cars look so fast and it, yeah. it happens so fast. I don't even know how you do it. Oh yeah. It's, uh, you watch a video of Brock or one of these guys racing on carpet and you have to actually go, is this sped up? Like, is yep. there, is there some like editing being done to this or something? And, and it, you know, it is, it's, it's, it's really nuts how fast, um, it looks on carpet and, and, and how you're making all these decisions. You're not making it like right now you're making it like three turns ago, you've already decided how this section is happening and you're, you're doing all this in this weird subconscious, uh, uh, and, and it's very impressive to watch what can be done. Yeah. I mean, anybody out there that's listening, I mean, next time you go to the track, just do yourself a favor and, and record in slow-mo a couple corners, like maybe at the end of the straightaway. Mm-hmm. Um, and even on carpet where we assume there's just tons of traction, uh, Cody Newman doll cliff and I went to, uh, Vegas to do some testing a few years ago and we were doing a lot of filming. And when you watch a car slow motion, like you're saying, Jason, I mean, 20 feet before the corner, the car starts turning in and it's yeah. sliding into the corner, even on carpet. Yeah. So it really is the subconscious, like your brain knowing what the timing is. Mm. Uh, and, and when you need to start turning so that you can hit this corner, you know, off a couple inches, but it's 20 feet ahead of you. It's, yeah. it's amazing what they do. Yeah. You know, and you talk to people about, you know, I talk to people a lot about, obviously there's the setup side of it. There's the driving side of it and all this. And, you know, a lot of times I come back and I'm like, you have to really realize how much of this is controlled by the driver. And sure there's the fine tuning aspect, but when you actually see what uh the uh, a really good driver is capable of it's really astounding um i mean i remember talking to mark pavitas back in the day about something and and he's just like i'm like how are you i'm like how's your car landing so well off of this triple jump i'm like it's yeah and we're pretty much all set up pretty much the same and he's like well i noticed that if i land on the side it's a little bit better and i'm just kind of jumping the car and I'm landing on the side instead of flat landing it. So, and I just found that it lands better that way. So I just try to, you know, I just try to set it up. So I'm just like, oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, all right. And which is what guys do today. I mean, they're, they're controlling the car in the air and that's what we talked about earlier, but um, these guys were already figuring that out. The Kinwalds, the Pavitas's. I mean, I, I, I do it. Um, not knowing because you're, you're turning in the air and stuff like that, but I don't do it on purpose as much as uh, these other guys do, but they were figuring that out back then. And um, you know, that's why, that's why people come up to these guys all the time. And why do you have so much traction? Why does your car land so good? And it's like, well, really it, it doesn't land much different than yours. I just, I'm a little bit better than you are at landing the car. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I can't remember if this was the pre-show or not, but it, you know, they're running the same equipment you can buy. It's mm-hmm. definitely the driver. It's, it's not, 
the equipment and you know mm-hmm. you always hear rumors about oh spencer's got such and such in his differential and 99.9 percent of the times it's not true yeah he built he built a differential and he built it correctly yeah. um but it's it's almost always the driver i mean i've i when i was getting into driving again a few years ago you know i gave my transmitter to Stephen hartson and washed my car around the track fast and i just thought yeah. yeah it's not the car and he's like this thing understeers yeah and he was still just ripping around the track. You're like, man, I, I thought it looked great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ken Peterson says, I'm 51, started when I was 15. RC racing keeps me young. Still love the challenge of tuning and working on cars. 51. Yeah, so Ken, I'm 51 as well. And uh, yeah, I I started you know a couple of years earlier with cars and you know at seven with airplanes, but uh, it, it is, I, I don't feel like I'm 51 when I was young. I always felt like 51 was really an old guy, but, um, you know, getting to go to work every day with RC cars and getting to play with them and having a whole bunch sitting in my office to stare at every day is, is a lot of fun. And, you know, one of the things we were talking about Spencer earlier and, and, you know, how dedicated you have to be to this. And, um, when we were just did the psycho nitro race, um, you know, he's hooked up with Jackson Brunson and, and, uh, you know, they've been kind of trying to get the most out of their racing during this down downtime of what's going on. They've been spending time in Arizona, then they come back East. And so, um, psycho nitro practice is 24 hours and the Friday morning, the track opened at 6 AM and he was the first one on the track. Mm-hmm. He told Richard, I'm going to be here. We're, we're getting here. I'm going to be the first one out. Richard had the car ready and he's fired up and he's ready. And, and I'm like, Hey, I'll see you there at eight, man. I'm not going to be there at six. Like, so there's, there's the answer to your question about how old are you going to be when you stop being fast? Right. It's like, cause us old guys can't right stay now. up 24 hours anymore. We <laughs> no. need to go to bed. Well, what you, what you see at that race is you see the older guys try, but then the performance starts to kind of dip down a little bit and yeah. um, they start to pack up a little early in the, they're there bright and early with the trailer set up, you know, on Wednesday, they're ready to go. But yeah. by the time Saturday night's rolling around, they're like, they're like, I got to pack up. I got to get out of here. It's over. But yeah, I mean, it was impressive. I mean, he had to get up at, I mean, I think he said he got up at four 30 in the morning, got there at six. And, uh, um, you know, for somebody that's young, uh, most young people, I mean, and even me, I, I don't like to get up early like that, you know, and, and no. just to, but to, but to really have that kind of fire or desire to want to be good is really what it comes down to. It does. I mean, I think Spencer's one of those guys that you, you kind of just know, um, has it, you know, I, mm-hmm. I think Brent has talked about that it factor mm-hmm. and there's plenty of guys that are fast, but you know, Spencer gets it. He knows he needs to be prepared. Um, he knows he, he needs to show up and work hard and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's got some tough competition and, yeah. uh, you're not going to show up and, and beat you know, Ryan's and Jared and stuff like that if you're not prepared. And, uh, it's, it is impressive because there are people, you know, my sons that'll sleep until noon because, you know, it's summertime and they don't have anything else to do with COVID. And, you know, I'm sure Spencer gets up and, and, uh, works on his stuff and, um, you know, uh, hopefully, you know, Jackson and all those other guys that are out there, it's rubbing off on them and they kind of see what he's doing and, uh, you know, get some results out of it. Cause it's, it's like our parents used to say, you know, you got to work hard <laughs> and there's no substitute for hard work. And it's, yeah. it's true with RC as well. Yeah. The easy button is not there. No, it's not. I mean, yeah, I don't care who you are. You know, Tessman's worked super hard to get his results and all yeah. the fast guys, you know, 
Yeah. I mean, when we used to, when I used to race at uh, Lake Park and um, I remember what we used to do was uh, we couldn't wait for the main to be over so we could try that thing right after the main when the track was the best that we wanted to try all day, but you didn't want to because you yeah. still wanted to win the club race. So it was like we would get there and you would you would run the club race and then you'd get through the day and you're like, okay, the main's done. You know, I won or I didn't or whatever, but now I want to try that thing I wanted to try all day, but I didn't want it to affect my results. So that was the best time. And and um I remember people that were there, they would just come and watch, you know, and and you and, you know, then the next time they're asking you, well, why, why are you doing good or why are you winning? And I'm like, well, because you're watching me practice and I'm actually practicing and, and trying it. You know what I mean? It's like, so it's like, well, that's one of the reasons right there. <laughs> yeah. And, and practicing isn't running laps. And that's, I think, something else that people don't always understand. They see the guys at the track and they think they're running laps. They're getting their timing down. That's the last thing they're working on. Um you know, the fast guys aren't afraid to try something and go backwards because they can go back to where they were and then maybe go in the opposite direction and all of a sudden they get faster. And um, it's it's really testing. They're really trying new things mm-hmm. and um, they're good enough to adjust if it's off just a little bit in a race these days. I think now more than ever, you probably see them throughout qualifying and even in the mains, putting something new on the car that they haven't tried because it feels like it might be right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're definitely not... You know, there's only a couple guys that kind of leave their cars the same and just drive it. You know, Ongaro is probably one where he's got basically two setups and he just says, I just need to drive better. Yeah. And you gotta, gotta know what's right for you. Yeah. And uh, so kind of leading in, we're talking about the drivers and, and, and uh, I thought was a, a big moment was uh, you, you know, you mentioned earlier, this kind of went on when you guys were doing, you know, you're moving and everything else and Spencer winning this worlds in Slovakia um, in the two wheel drive class, kind of on, you know, maybe uh, one of the biggest competitors uh, in the business right now and winning it on their track. Um, I told Spencer, I think he probably won the best worlds I've ever been to, you know, and um, not that some of them are, you know, not were just as good or, or whatever, or more or more difficult, but, you know, just being there, I'm like, man, this might be the best one to win that I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh- I agree. I, I mean, first of all, you know, X-Ray looked like they and Hootie did a really good job of putting on the event. It looked really top, top notch, you know, very kind of high tech and it, lo- it looked like a very, very well run event. Um, but there is the backstory that we kind of talked about a little bit where we were moving and we were faced with all these kind of business challenges. Um, we had Brent, our team manager, helping us a lot with move and just getting stuff organized. So we sent, um, you know, basically two guys to the warm up, yeah. Um, just to s- kind of scope things out, and we came back thinking this isn't going to go very well. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a lot to learn, and uh, you know, to the credit of you know Dustin and Spencer, both you know they came back, they wrote reports, they had a lot of conversations with our team, with Brent, with the engineers, and talked about what went. I don't know if you call it wrong, but what could have gone better. Yeah, and uh, you know, then you, you fly the whole team out to a you know competitors track, and X-ray is a great competitor. And you end up winning. And not only that, but, you know, Davide was, you know, could have almost, almost, you know, if, if he would have pushed a little bit harder, he might've won. So we had yeah. a good one too. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it always feels good to add another world championship, but, you know, adding the one in Slovakia did feel particularly good. Um, it also felt, I think, really good 
because Spencer also went to the Yokomo track at Yatabi Arena in 2015 and beat him there. Yeah. So he's the kid that we're going to put our money on if it's a competitor's track, I guess. Yeah. Um, but it has a really big deal. And I mean, there's, there's like, you know, it sounds weird, but there's, you know, you well up a little bit cause you know, these guys work so hard and yeah. you, I think a lot of people see, you know, Spencer and Brent at the track a lot, but you know, it's our, our engineers are working really hard and they're, you know, we're talking tens of millimeters and different materials and sampling stuff and testing a lot. And they put a lot of work into this and it, it really does feel like a team achieves something, even when it's really Spencer's victory. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it feels special. I, I, I still remember I was new at associated in 2015, uh, when the, the world's happened in Japan. And I remember watching it. It was late at night, I think, or as early in the morning and was, we were watching Spencer and I remember getting texts, you know, watching it on my computer and getting texts from Cliff. He's like, are you seeing this? Are you looking at what's going on? And I, I could just feel like every, you know, every, all these texts start coming in and it's getting closer. And I didn't want to say anything. Yeah. And you really have this feeling like we've achieved something. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we, we had the same feeling at Slovakia. I mean, with, with Davide winning, I mean, winning our first yeah. eight scale was really special yeah. because we've, worked hard at getting our eight scale program on point and it, yeah. we had some struggles and they're pretty public, you know, uh, things that had gone wrong and, you mm-hmm. know, to, to get it right enough that you can win a worlds. And then to build on that, we just released a new car that everybody seems to be pretty happy with the changes we made. It's, it's a really satisfying feeling. Yeah. The, the eight scale path, um, has not been easy. Um, you know, the, the two wheel drive is, is, is a little more natural for, for you guys. Uh, the eight scale, um, that has been anything but easy and um, just challenge after challenge over the years with that, with that vehicle. And um, you know, you, anything there has happened has happened, right. Uh, Anything there is to happen. And, and, you know, and I've been there at every single one of these things and the Ryan's and um, you know, and everybody that ran the cars and Richard being there the whole time and, and, uh, you know, Cody and these guys and, Really, like you said, getting there to Australia and um, uh, winning that race with a car that was very stock, uh, like once again, you know, very stock kind of car. Um, you know, there was some people that um, kind of protested him at the end with the, still thinking that he's using a gyro and. Yeah. Um, and at that all, point it was all the way bit to of, the point where JQ posted that video of his thumb on the stick. And then it's like, yeah. Oh, maybe, yeah. maybe it's human. <laughs> yeah. And, and it got to be funny because they're checking the cars over in tech and they're, you know, they were doing everything, you know, they, uh, they got the radio box open. They got, you know, the one guy's like, we got to take the engine head off. I mean, they, I mean, they were doing Mayfield's car too. You know, anybody was in the top three. So they did, uh, um, Angaro, they did a uh, Ty Testman and they did Mayfield's car and they were, they were looking at all of them. And pretty soon they got, you know, they got David A's car out and they, they, you know, the guy's holding his radio and they're like trying it. And, and it was like, um, it was just kind of funny the way it all went down. But, um, the wow. fact that he won and that thing, and you're looking at this car and you're like, this thing's pretty much a stock car. I mean, it, it's, it was a, it was a nice piece. And, and I think that was probably, probably the biggest climb uh, to win a race like that, because I would say that most people 
at that time would have said you can't win with that associated eight scale and 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 they've really been proved wrong now yeah it's 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 been really satisfying i mean we um i met davide for the first time at the 2016 worlds in vegas and he was running for another team he's running from Mugen at the time and you know, I think he took kind of a leap of faith joining us because our eight scale program wasn't great. It wasn't bad. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, back then, you know, Cavalieri uh, qualified really well. Unfortunately, had the flame out in, in yeah. the main. And um, but, you know, the car was OK, but it certainly wasn't where we wanted it to be. And I think everybody knew it. Um, mm-hmm. But you just keep your head down. And that's what the pros do. You know, they yeah. keep their heads down and they get the best results they can. Um, but yeah, I still feel a little bit badly about how that ended at the world. I don't know if it's a compliment that people think you have a gyro or if they, you know, there's some that just think you're a cheater, but yeah. you know, then you can go to England and lose your wing and still drive and beat yeah. you know, most everybody else that's a professional driver without a wing. Then I guess it sounds like Spencer tried to do that at Psycho Nitro last yeah. week, yeah. you know, lose his wing and try to hold on to a car. Mm-hmm. These guys are yeah. incredible. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, it's been a climb. And I think, like you said, he talked about, you know, getting into, um, you know, that's kind of essentially the, <laughs> the next question, which is, you know, now you've released the B6.2, the RC8B uh, 3.2, and then the element stuff. But, um, you know, which kind of leads into, um, you know, these cars seem to be doing well in the market. Uh, I, I told Spencer earlier, I said, you know, when you guys ran Psycho, he had that second round of qualifying with his, uh, where he TQ'd the round and, and I said, you know what? I think it's one of the first times I've I've seen you run the car on a on sort of a not a perfect track condition, and really had something for the guys. I thought the car looked really good, um, maybe the best one in, in that qualifier, and um, and you know, and that's you know, and you have Brian out there, you got or both Ryan's out there, you got Jared out there, you got Adam Drake, and all the other kind of ups up and coming guys too, and um, it's it's definitely making some strides and you're saying that the sales have been good too, right? People enjoying the vehicles. Yeah. I I think we're getting to the point. I mean, we always um, looked at brands like Kyosho and Mugen as sort of being the dominant eight scale brands. And and I, you know, you look at the results um, and they usually filled out the main pretty good and you'd have some TLRs and maybe some AE or some, some other Mm -hmm. brands, but those guys were the big guys. And, um, you know, we just felt like we had to get up to the point where we're competing. And I think finally we're, we're getting there. Um, you know, obviously like Dan Hissom came in and made some, some big improvements to the car. And now TJ Eller, uh, is one of our engineers has done a lot of work on, on the car and, uh, you know, the eight scale platform has been around for a long time. I think it started probably with like a Kyosho burns back in the eighties or something like that. Yeah. They still kind of look the same. So it's really getting into fine tuning and, uh, just adjusting things now. Um, and they've done a good job and it does feel like we've seen, you know, the sales of our eight scale stuff get a little better. Um, and I think there's more confidence in general from the consumers that, uh, you know, associate car would be the, the one to, to pick. Um, they, they can certainly be fast. Um, and you know, I think we feel like we're a little closer to the level of uh, the big boys uh, where they yeah. were all those years. Yeah. You know, I think, um, it's, it's definitely coming along and, uh, yeah, it's been nice to see, you know, you got, um, and then, you know, now you got the, the B6.2, uh, obviously that's kind of the, um, the flagship vehicle, the two wheel buggy. That's the one that you kind of got to get right. And, uh, that thing's been right. 
Yeah, it's the scary one, right? Because I think we're kind of known for our two-wheel drive buggies. So um, there's always things you want to try um, that are maybe a little bit out of the realm of what you've been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's that feeling like, you know, the car is pretty competitive. Um, and we don't want to do too much and screw things up and move backwards. So um, to me, that's always a, it, it's a scary car when we start talking about re-engineering it. And, and honestly, we talk about every week, like, what are we doing next? What's the next step? Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's tougher than let's say talking about, you know, the next short course or the next truck or something like that, you know, eight scale and 10 scale are, are the big classes that you really want to win. And you really want to drive to improvements every single time because without them, you know, there's some great competitors out there. We got a lot of guys that oh, yeah. are super fast, uh, that are, are want to win as badly as we do. Yeah. And there's a lot of good products right you know you're racing good drivers and good products and it's it it doesn't it doesn't get any easier yeah i mean all the products are really good everybody's uh, you know the top guys are all doing a good job and if if, you know we we gave dakota fend a thousand dollars and and ryan mayfield a thousand dollars and each of the you know each of the team's top guys and just say thousand dollars go into a hobby shop build the car right here and we're gonna have a race they'd all be fast all the cars would go together pretty well um, you know, I don't know that you can really go wrong with any of the top brands. They're all a little mm-hmm. bit different. They maybe suit different styles, but, um, you know, the, the bigger things are probably, you know, is there good part support? Is there good customer service? And there's probably some differences on that level. Um, yeah. um you know, there's a lot of hobby shops out there. Do they carry the brand that you're going to run? And, um, you know, that's where we're pretty fortunate. We're, we're really, really well supported by all the dealers out there, you know, really around the world. It's pretty easy to find associated parts. Yeah, we were in Coral Springs a couple weeks ago, and we had a, a, a lot of friends that came down from Georgia to race. And, um, you know, the guy had an x-ray four-wheel drive, and he's like, hey, I broke my suspension mount, my D-block or whatever it is. And he's like, you guys, do you have one? I'm like, no. You know, I'm like, I, I don't know where you're going to get one. And, um, <clears throat> you know, if it was a B74 or maybe even a B64, we might have had it, but... Um, like you said, that, that is another part of this is, are you going to have the part you need when you need it? You know, is the support there? Not that you can't get it, but it happens a little differently this, these days. You don't just drive around the corner to the hobby shop and pick up these high end tuning products, uh, um, for every single race car out there. Yeah. It's funny. I I still remember a statement. I think it came from Akira Kogawa. This is back in my HPI days, but we were talking about instructions and why they were important and, you know, how even just a little bit off would mislead somebody and why it was a problem and why we need to keep driving to make our instructions better. And we ended up with kind of the conclusion that, you know what, we're making a product that we know A is going to wear out and B is going to break. And it was kind of in the realm of how our instructions should look. But, you know, then you start thinking about what other products are out there where, you know, the guy, the guy that's making it is confident it's going to break. Yeah. You know, there's not a lot. So you know, we are in kind of a unique thing, you know, a dishwasher or something like that. You expect the thing just to run for 12 or yeah. 15 years and never have to service it. I mean, with an RC car, yeah. you're working on that thing more than you're driving it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we have a, a kid here that works with us. He has a Traxxas Stampede and I gave him one of my old T2s. Uh, I'm like, Hey, take this RC 10 T2 and let's like research it, you know, look at it online, you know, from the old days and let's see what it needs. We'll get the parts. So I kind of 
try to let them have some fun with researching it a little bit and, and getting into it. And, 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 uh, but it, it is a, you know, what I've noticed about it is he takes these things back and he runs them and he has fun with it. He kind of tells me how it goes. And, um, but there's always something to fix. Yeah. And it like, you, you know, kind of going back to what you're saying is, you know, it's like, oh, well, I fell off, you know, the dirt road and I fell into the water and then this happened. And then, what? you know, um, yeah, you know, like, you know, all this stuff happens to people, right? Like, <laughs> sounds like well, something yeah, I like, would do. Drive yeah, off the road, you know, this is what, fall in the water. <laughs> yeah, but this is what happens, right? Like to people that have RC cars right. is they're not running them in Slovakia at this track at the top level where they're, you know, they're running them anywhere and everywhere. And, and you, you learn a lot from, um, from these experiences because, you know, he's bringing the thing back every other day and it's like, Hey, yeah, this happened. And, and then, um, and they're like, yeah, you know, I can see that happening, you know, and you don't really realize it because I don't really play with a lot of my RC cars. So it's like, you know, unless it's on a track or some kind of, built you know uh situation you're not really driving it and um so when you know you're learning about how this kind of really works and going back to what you're saying is the instructions and you're ultimately you're building this thing to take it right back apart again all the time and you got to learn um you know where you're missing screws and 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 how this affects that and you know, you look at the car later and you're like, you know, I can see why this was a problem, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, the something, you know, the rear end's falling off or something's, you know, and, and you can see um, what the customer experiences having these vehicles and how you have to be um, just as um, you have to really love working on it as much as you like driving it. That's really what it comes down to, because you're ultimately working on it all the time. You are. I mean, we, we released a drag race car and I know you've you know, made a lot of bodies for drag race cars. And you, you know, to me, it's still kind of a, you're going to drive straight for 132 feet. Yeah. But the cars are quick enough that they're breaking stuff and the guys are crashing and rolling them over. And you, know, mm-hmm. you can still break a suspension arm or you can certainly roach a gearbox mm-hmm. you know, by putting a 2.5 motor in or something like mm-hmm. that. So even when you're driving straight for 132 feet, you're still going to break stuff. The tires are still going to wear out. Um, and you know, you're going to need to paint a new body every once in a while. And, um, you know, that's probably almost the simplest form of RC. Yeah. And you still work on those cars quite a bit and you're constantly setting the slipper and, you know, you want to get the dog bones at a certain angle and, you know, everything, everything adds up to a better time. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I went and drag raced with AJ. It was a week ago and it kicked my ass. I mean, it, I saw he won. That was good. Yeah, he did. And He's been really uh, doing well with the the, the DR10 and, and uh, but he's really dedicated to it. He likes it. And um, so he set my car up and I went out and ran with, you know, the test and tune session they had. And I mean, you know, one time I'm going left, then I'm going right. Then I'm doing a backflip because the air is under the car. And, and I'm like, I am so out to lunch doing this. Like, you know, and I'm just, you know, you tell everybody, you know, the first thing everyone says is, oh, oh, you're just going straight. Like you just punch it. And you're like, well, yeah, but now everything, it's all about going straight. That's the whole, you know, it's like how fast, you know, how straight can you go? And, um, it's way more difficult 
And people are loving this. They're absolutely loving these things. And I don't know if it's the challenge, the hobby side of it. Uh, well, obviously it's all those things. It's um, we got the hobby guys, we got the scale looks, we got this performance aspect and there's the competition aspect. So um, it's been kind of neat, but very difficult. It, it is neat. It is difficult. I went um, and did one drag race. That's all I've done so far. And uh, Cliff was there for part of the day and a couple of our engineers were there. And I remember on the way back, I rode with one of the engineers and we're just uh, like, this isn't right. We need to, we need to do something. What if we did this? And he's like, I've already drawn something up and we immediately go back and start doing this. And I was talking to Cliff about, Hey, we got to work on this and this and this, and you get really, you know, Rick Hort from really involved. And we started talking about this and, and Cliff's just like, Sean, you're going to ruin drag racing, but you know, that, that like, we got to go, we got to go straighter. We got to go faster. The car's got to launch harder. It's got to be more consistent. You know, slipper pads change throughout the day as the heat. And you know what? The shocks, the car squats different between the morning and the afternoon. It's all the same stuff. We're back to with like a two wheel drive buggy where you're trying to get all these variables, like, and understand what they are Mm -hmm. um, so that you can go faster. And, but I, I did see like in the, in the drag racing, it's a little bit more like the, um, the crawling where people are just they're they really love seeing that you have something that looks a little bit different than they do. Yeah. And they're taking pride in the way the car looks. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't look alien. Let's say like a two wheel drive buggy mm-hmm. or an eight scale does. They, they, you know, I had a Chevelle, so that's why I raced this Chevelle body or yep. something like that. And mm-hmm. um, I, I really enjoy seeing them do pretty, you know, doing well with it. And, and uh, you know, the DR 10's done well for us. So hopefully we can continue that. We're, we're just getting ready to ship out some kits, DR 10 kits now. Yeah, yeah so you went through, you had a, the orange, we'll just call them the orange edition, the green edition, and now you got the builder's kit, essentially, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, everybody, and we were kind of thinking that maybe there would be, um, I don't know, you'd call it kind of a stock class that everybody would run. And um, and we're still hoping that that continues, that people can buy a car that's relatively cheap. Um, you know, the, the thing that we've talked about in the office is you can only change fluids. So if you want to change shock or diff fluids, but everything else should stay the same because it keeps the cost and the you know, kind of the barrier to entry down. Mm-hmm. And then of course, we're gonna have the guys that want to go put the two, five motor in, and, you know, change the battery every month. Cause they're blasting it at 70 amps and all that stuff. That's <laughs> fine too. But we're still hoping that there's an entry point where the guys can get into it for, let's call it 350 bucks and go racing. Yeah. I mean, that's what I talk about all the time with people is, is, uh, the reason it has success is because of those three things we talked about earlier with the scale looks and this and that. And when you get away from that and you have a $1,800 chassis set up with a body that doesn't, that isn't look scale anymore or have any kind of licensing look to it. Um, I think we're kind of lost you know, you, you really lose in that situation. Uh, you're once you get down that road, there's no turning back, and and it's it's really ugly out there for the future of that type of of racing because what it does, in my opinion, is it eliminates people getting into it because they had that Chevy Nova or Chevelle, and they they no longer have that that uh. Um, you know, that love for it because they just aren't seeing it the same way anymore. And I think it's really important for that to stick in there. Yeah. It's what we talked about earlier with, with touring cars. 
one of the reasons I think touring cars was big was not necessarily because of the chassis. It's because I always wanted a Porsche 911 or a BMW M3 or a you know Ford Mustang or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know some of them were really aspirational or just really completely wacky. You know, you know like a, it's a Pikes Peak, you know Suzuki Escudo yeah. or something like that was a really mm-hmm. good seller back in the day, but you know, they saw Monster Jujima driving it up Pikes Peak, so they wanted one. But, mm-hmm. you know, the cars that sold well back then were Honda Civics, Honda Accords, and things like that. You know, it was cars that people actually drove and could, yeah. you know, afford. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now we're back to this where, you know, my dad had a Nova, so I'm going to get this. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I really appreciate that about both, you know, kind of the scale and the crawling side. Um, and also, so the drag racing, it's fun to have it look like something, not mm-hmm. like an alien vehicle. So, um, okay, go ahead, Gotti. You had a question that you kind of threw up there. Uh, uh, it was about the ship video. date, wasn't it? Yeah, on the DR10, uh, uh, Alan was wondering. Uh, when on the kit, yeah, the Alan. Show. So um, I'll take a guess. Uh, we just QC'd the cars. I think it was yesterday, today, what, Thursday. Maybe it was yesterday. We QC'd the cars. Um, I think everything went well. Uh, so what we usually do is we stage vehicles, um, depending on where, uh, the distributor is. So a lot of times if it's Europe, they get shipped first and then it'll be East coast, Midwest, West coast. Um, that'll probably all be happening next week. So your hobby shops will probably happen, have them, uh, maybe late next week or the early, the following week, beginning of the month. All right. And he also says, Jason, uh, make a Cadillac drag body. We have one. There you go. You have one, Alan. <laughs> out there rj well, says uh no it's not out there yet but oh, we do have one. oh it's not out there yet you have one in the works okay it's coming yeah. it's coming soon uh yeah. rj says driving straight for 132 feet isn't as easy as it looks back in the 80s it was even more challenging <laughs> yeah with the yeah. servos we used to have back then no kidding yeah i mean at least we have good servos these days and you know proper uh links and stuff but you know jason like you were saying um you know, when I went out and raced, the car went pretty straight in the beginning. And then as it got hotter and hotter, you know, I'd start grabbing more throttle and the car would just leap to the right sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even just how you stage the car and the color of uh, the VHT that's on the track, if you're running a prep track, I mean, that stuff, I mean, John Schultz taught me a lot and I'm still not confident I could go out and go straight right off the bat. It's, yeah. there is some driving involved. Actually, one mm-hmm. of the guys commented, is like, well, oh, he really saved that one. He can drive. And it's like, <laughs> I can actually drive. Okay. I didn't realize I was going to have to, but my reactions yeah. took over and I, you know, bicycled it on two wheels for like 15 feet. Right. Yeah. It's like, somebody said that to me when I was out there, like, man, it's like, I'm surprised you can, you can drive well. Um, you know, you don't really run that much. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, like, well, I thought I could drive until I drove this drag car. <laughs> like, yeah. and then like, this has been the ultimate challenge. You're, you're standing behind it, watching it go down a straight line, and you're still having problems going straight. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a little frustrating, but RJ I, adds, I mean, it's a whole new. Uh, oh, sorry. RJ adds that go, you can hit ahead. the wheelie bar too hard, and you can unload the suspension. Yeah. And then you don't know where it yeah. will go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch bunch of little things that are new to me at least in terms of setup and you know the nice thing is always to set the wheelie bar really high and watch the thing wheelie a long ways but it's that's not the fast way around <laughs> yeah so you're like i'm straight out of the movies with this thing yeah you know fast and the furious or whatever <laughs> yeah it's like um, you know halsey driving that that corvette in the uh, dirty harry movie you know a long time ago oh man so, yeah. so we got the uh, uh, just a little bit here about you released a couple new micro cars. I don't know exactly what we're calling them, minis or 
micros. You had the the little element truck that's yeah. uh, that's coming. Twenty twenty four scale um, uh, trucks coming out that um, we just announced, and um, it's a certainly it's a segment that uh, we wanted to get a little bit more into. We released twenty eight scale cars probably close to four years ago now. Um, and uh, they're still selling pretty well. And what we were hoping to do is get, uh, I talked a little bit earlier about getting younger people kind of into mm-hmm. the hobby, um, because I do think it's a really great hobby for, for kids. And it's something they can stick with for the rest of their life. I think there's a lot of great hobbies out there, but you're not going to be some BMX champion when you're 50 years old or 40 years old. You know, you're going to have to stop at some point because your body's going to be wrecked. Um, but with RC, you know, we, we came out with kind of a $55 price point with the 28 scale cars. We came out with this at a hundred dollar price point. And, uh, we're really hoping that when somebody go, you know, maybe a father or somebody goes out to buy an RC car that they decide to, you know, spend a little bit more and get something for junior at home mm-hmm. and something they can have that something that's not intimidating. You can drive in your house. If you hit yourself in the foot, you're not going to break your ankle. Um, if you hit the baseboard, it's not going to dent it. Um, but you know, with the 24 scale car, you can actually go and use it. You can take it outside and use it on some, you know, crawl up some rocks and, and fall whatnot. In water. And, uh, fall, fall in water. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All the, the stuff that you're going to do, Gotti. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. So, uh, I, you know, one of the big questions obviously is I was, um, so, uh, once what's next, any surprises, things that people can be excited about stuff you can. Yeah, there is. But I, I, I mean, I get this question every time I go somewhere to a track or somebody knows where I work and we, we typically don't talk about really what's coming up. Um, I, I will say that this is uh, the most aggressive engineering schedule, the year 2020 that we've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of stuff that's coming out uh, in the second half of the year. Um, it's kind of spread throughout, you know, there's a little bit of something for the bashers, a little bit of something for the, the, the trail scale guys. Uh, and there's going to be stuff for the racer too. So I think no matter what kind of compartment you fit yourself into, um, you'll have something that will uh, be interesting to you here in the next, you know, the rest of the year. And really actually we're already, you know, working on a lot of stuff for early 2021 as well. 2021. Yeah. So uh, two last things about, um, so obviously the, the COVID stuff, um, and we'll, we'll go ahead with your question first. Uh, from Billy, he says, uh, will there ever be a new version of SC8 from the B3T3 platform? Or is there not enough interest? Ah. Well, it's more complicated than that. Um, I think well, that reminds me of another question. Go ahead. All right. <laughs> go. I, I mean, I think a lot of people that are, are listening to this podcast pretty much know the industry um, and have followed it somewhat more than just playing with the, the, the cars themselves. But um, there were some some bankruptcies over the last few years. You know, Hobbyco is probably the most recognizable in in the U.S. Um, but there were suppliers that went bankrupt as well. And when a supplier goes bankrupt, uh, in more cases than not, they're in China or Taiwan. And what you end up doing is you end up losing the molds or trying to challenge them in court and getting the molds. We do have some products that you'll never see again, and you can't necessarily say it's because um, it's not interesting or something like that. It's because it's just too hard to make. The supplier's either gone or we couldn't get all the tools or it's not worth you know, spending all the money to create the missing tools. Um, so th- that's just kind of the reality of business is that we've lost uh, a few suppliers in our industry. It's not just affected Associated, but it's affected others as well. 
Um, when somebody goes out of business, a lot of times we'll even talk, you know, competitors, you know, did you lose something there? Or I know where this is, or somebody bought these. And sometimes we can recover some molds. We've been able to re- we recovered about 109 last year. Um, but we probably had 500 and something with the supplier that went under. So some of the cars will never come back. Jeez. Yeah. It's, it's the tough part of business. And the SC8 type of stuff is part of, could be part of that. Yeah, it was. So yeah, there, there are some cars that unfortunately are just going to be tough to bring back, but it doesn't mean that we'll leave the segment. It'll probably just, you know, at some point we'll, we'll, it'll come back as something new, a new name and something that looks a little bit different. Um, so, uh, the question I had before is, uh, the guys, um, the vintage guys with, um, um, they want me to ask about the vintage stuff. Uh, you yeah. guys went through that phase. We did the, the RC 10 classic. We did the world's car. Uh, there was some, you know, parts out there, uh, for the vehicles and, um, is there any hope for the vintage guys at this point? And uh, it seems like you guys are one of the rare people that have sort of embraced uh, that community a little bit and the RC 10 in general. And uh, they're always asking me. So I got, yeah, it's a good question. It's something I get asked all the time too. And um, again, without knowing the backstory, I think it's really easy for people to say, Hey, just go shoot some plastic and make a few more kits. Even if it's a small run, Um, the RC 10 was, one of the cars that we lost a lot of the molds um, because yeah, we'd, we'd probably you know be willing to do another run. We'd have to have a good idea. The original kind of gold pan, gold pan uh, recreation did really well. Then we had the world's car, um, the 91 car uh, that did well. I don't know what we do next, but we certainly get re- you know requests all the time um, because there's something that that gold pan did to people. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I can go to an auto mechanic or something like that and wear my associated shirt. And they say, do you work there? I had an RC 10 back in. I, I mean, I've heard that dozens and dozens and dozens of times from mm-hmm. people that aren't even in the industry yeah. um, that still remember it had a gold chassis. Um, so yeah, we talk about it a lot. We talk about it um, probably more in terms of like, Hey, our anniversary, you know, you know, having a 60th or a 60, you know, 75th anniversary or something like that down the road. Um, you know, doing some, some cool stuff that would kind of harken back to the good old age of 83, 84. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a, a good idea. I mean, when we, we talked to Curtis on the show and I was like, I, I brought up the same exact thing, how every video, every photo we put up or fight, you know, and somebody said, I had a gold pan RC 10. It's just like, you could copy and paste that every single time because, and I, I was asking Curtis, I'm like, how in the hell many of these cars did you guys sell? Like, I mean, with everybody in, you know, I'm like, it has to be one of the best selling cars easily of all time. I mean, if you take all the generations, I'm sure it is. Um, I I used to race for associated back in the eighties. So I'd go to the facility quite a bit. And I mean, they had, they used to do all the packaging in house and they made a lot of the stuff with dog bones and outdrives and stuff was made. You know, Curtis ran the shop that made that stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. And I mean, they had a warehouse full of people packaging stuff. I mean, your friends, you know, the friends that you and I have, Mark Pavitas used to sit mm-hmm. in there and, and wind mm-hmm. motors and saw all of it too. They, they sold a lot. I've heard that they had, you know, usually we talk about, you know, having a month's, you know, back order or something like yeah. that as being really good. They had years worth of back orders where they just couldn't make enough to fill demand. Yeah. 
Um, I, I do think it's good. And then they ended up having a whole bunch of versions. So if you include, let's say like a TQ 10 or something like that, where it had a graphite chassis, mm-hmm. you know, add all those versions together. Yeah. I think the RC 10 in general has done really, really well. It's like we were, we're, I was talking to Curtis and I remember Pete, Pete Cooney who worked there mm-hmm. in all those years. I remember he used to tell me, he's like, I used to tell our vendors, it wasn't send them a purchase order for 5,000 parts. I would just tell them, keep making this until I tell you not to. Yeah. He's like that. He's like, I honestly would tell people keep making this and just until I tell you not to that. He's like, that's how many of these things we were selling. Yeah. In the, like, in the golden era of yeah. racing, I mean, the bins, let's say for a body clip was a giant bin. It would be you know like 10 inches deep and maybe eight, 18 by you know 12. You know, it, it was a big bin and there'd just be body clips and they'd keep filling this thing. Yeah all the time and you know eclipse and all the stuff that we used to have to deal with i'm sure that's correct it was just a huge vat and i used to get a box and i'd go grab a handful and put it in and then walk down the aisle a little bit more and get Mm -hmm. all the stuff i needed and you know it's that was long before computers and you know having really good inventory control and knowing where everything is and barcodes and all that stuff Mm -hmm. and yeah pete would just buy stuff now that bites us too, because when we go to move, we're like, Hey, what are all these boxes sitting here <laughs> for? And Oh my God, that's, that's, you know, $10,000 worth of stuff. We'll never be able to sell. I remember, uh, wrenching with, with Mark in when there was, they had a wrench room next door that I think they got because there was still an extra warehouse and over there. And then we could kind of wrench there when uh, everything was closed. But I would look in this warehouse and I was like, there was like pallets and pallets of kit boxes and pallet. What I remember is pallets of those graphite RC 10 chassis and the ones, you know, with the kick up already on it. And it was for the TQ 10 or the graphite car or whatever. And I was just looking at this pallet. I'm like talking to Mark. I'm like, this is thousands of chassis like, and the kit boxes just, it seemed like it went on forever. I'm like, I'm like no wonder why they're shipping our team orders in these kit boxes because they're there's tens of thousands of these things over here. You know? It was the good old days, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, it was absolutely amazing. And um, yeah, and then to be that young and you're looking at this stuff and you're just like, this is incredible um, to to see and and look at and uh, and it's like all right off to the track we gotta go yeah i I mean i i I have friends you know over the years that learn kind of what i do and they always say probably the same thing to you to you jason it's like oh what a fun hobby and you (laughs) still say it is it's it's a great hobby but it is still a business yeah and you know all that inventory costs money and you know just sort of the logistics of getting everything in and out and working with distributors and dealers worldwide it, it does still take work and the unfun parts of, you know, the, whether it's insurance or any of this other stuff that happens day in, day out, you know, it, it, it's, there's some unfun parts to it, but, uh, man, I'd rather be moving around RC cars and a lot of other things. I remember, Cans of Cliff, beans or something. Yeah. I remember Cliff telling me when, you know, when I was at associated there and, and he's like, you know, he's like, lots of people will walk around here and they'll see bearings on the ground and they just walk right by it, you know? And he's like, I pick them up because he's like, we had profit sharing here. <laughs> you yeah. know? and he's like i'm picking those bearings up and i'm putting them back in the in the uh you know in the bin to put it back in the kit you know i'm not letting those bearings roll around on the floor and um yeah and that's one of the things i think you have to do you know in the, in the last few years <laughs> we worked a lot on the efficiency of the business and obviously you know the computer side and the website side and 
Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not an easy business, you know, the margins aren't massive. Like, you know, some, you know, if you're selling sunglasses or something like that and, uh, you know, flying people all around the world is not cheap either. Um, and, uh, you know, you've got to be smart. So we're trying to be smarter as a business too, and just be efficient and make sure that we use, uh, whatever capital we have in the best way possible. And, uh, we're also trying to be a little bit more diversified than we have in the past where we, um, you know, ready to runs do kind of help pay for race cars at some mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we want to be successful with whether it's a drag car or it's, a, it's, you know, an element trail truck. And, um, you know, one of the reasons I think we've been successful at racing is we just want it, you know, yeah. you, you can't just happen upon world championships. You've got to really, really work hard and, you know, have some luck on your side as well. Um, and, you know, try to balance everything out, make sure that, uh, you know, we're, we're ready for anything, you know, no matter what, what trend goes up or down. Yeah, I mean, a kind of a story I had when we were in Japan in 95, and I remember Reedy was checking out of the hotel. You know, you talk about, um, you know, traveling around and, you know, guys going to races. And I remember him checking out, and obviously this was a little in the golden years, you know, and he's checking out at the hotel, and I'm standing there. And they give him the, the, the invoice or the receipt for the hotels, and I'm like, does this say $16,000? I'm like you're trying to convert your, yen to dollars. That's what your hotel costs for this race. Your hotel bill was sixteen thousand dollars. Like, yeah, and cow. you know, it, it, it's a big part. You know, there's you know, I think the the glamorous thing is to say, oh, these drivers are getting paid, but mm-hmm. you know, we also pay for a team manager, and we pay for something like Richard, who's a mechanic. Um, mm-hmm. We pay for a lot of hotel rooms, a lot of flights. There's a lot of testing that goes on. So uh, whether you're paying for track rental or whatever, we break a lot of parts. We throw a lot of stuff away. Mm-hmm. Um, not everything we try works. Um, and, you know, all that goes into a successful race team. Yeah. But yeah, it's expensive. So just a quickie thing, we'll close out on the, uh, the COVID thing in mm-hmm. terms of, um, you know, how do you think this has been handled in the business and, and, um, how you think the sales have been and, and, and you know, cause I think when this started, everybody was really pretty scared. Yeah, were you going to say something, Gotti? We had a question come in uh, from Kirby. Oh. Actually, he asked about the, um, have you seen an uptick in RC sales since COVID-19? Uh, the power sports industry sales have skyrocketed since COVID. Well, is that Mike Kirby? Kirby hand. That's Kirby. Kirby hand. Hand. Okay. Well, <laughs> Kirk, Kirby has a well-timed question. Cause that was exactly what Jason was asking. Uh, yeah. What we saw, and I think most of the industry saw is we, we had an initial downturn where everybody freaked out right in March. Um, we were also a little bit preoccupied, you know, getting all of our employees, you know, a lot of them had workstations at work and they, they came into work every day. We always go into the office. So, um, you know, we were trying to figure out what the rules are, what does shutdown really mean? How do we get laptops for all of our staff having to procure the laptops, get them set up. And during that time, I think everybody else was doing the same thing. Oh my God, my kids aren't going to school anymore. So we saw an initial downturn and then we saw a pretty big upturn. So, um, really kind of like, you know, May and June were good months for us and talking to my friends in the industry, they've said the same thing. Um, if you talk to some of the bigger dealers or distributors, they also say the same thing. Uh, people are stuck at home. And that's been uh, one of the good things, I think, for the hobby is we're exposing maybe some people that left for a while. Like he said, um, Jason, you know, if you leave, it's kind of hard to come back. This might have given them kind of the kick in the pants to get back in. 
So we've actually, we've been really, really pretty happy um, all the way up till now. It seems like it's flattening out a little bit where, you know, maybe we've sold a lot of cars in the last couple months. Um, but now we're running out of inventory because we sold more than we thought we would. Um, another thing that a lot of people don't understand is that, you know, the cars that we're just receiving in now and selling, let's say this summer, we ordered them in January, February. If it has a radio in it, it's a long lead time item. And then it sits on the boat for three and a half weeks to get here. So we didn't see all this stuff coming in January and February. And then when we saw it coming, we had all the suppliers shut down for a month to six weeks. So they weren't making RC cars. So there's been some supply disruption in the industry. And that's, that's kind of been one of the bad things, you know, sales up is great, but not having the inventory to get everybody what they want. DR 10s is a perfect example. We could have sold more if we would have had more, um, you know, the, the trail runner that came out, same thing. A lot of the cars have been released in the last few months. Um, yeah, COVID, I don't know how long it's going to last. We have everybody, almost everybody working it from home. We, we have a couple of people going in the office that need to be in the office, um, depending on what's going on. Uh, we've learned some stuff about ourselves and how we work together. Some of it positive, um, which is, which is good, I guess, you know, take a kind of a crisis and learn something from it. Um, but uh, you know, my guess is, uh, you know, racing is not going to do super well for the rest of this year. Um, I think we were talking before we started recording, but, uh, Europe, it doesn't have many big races coming up. Um, in the U S we had some uh, races, but they got canceled. The nationals, I think there's one or two that's still kind of up in the air, whether it's going to happen or not. It seems to be a little bit more, um, dependent on what state you're in and what situation they're in, whether you're going to have a race. Um, there's obviously been some talk about restrictions of people going into certain States, which would also be hard to hold the nationals when you can't have somebody from another yeah. state come in. Um, so, you know, it, it, just like it's a kick in the pants for people to get back in the hobby. Hopefully it's going to have people be, you know, go back to club racing and enjoying the hobby and getting some practice and hanging out with the buds again. Um, But, you know, we've certainly seen a shift, at least in our business model to maybe uh, let's say crawling and and certainly drag racing over the last couple of months. All right. Well, um, let's give the, if you want to give a, close it out with uh you know just giving thanks to anybody that's obviously that you want to give thanks to and usually we say sponsors but (laughs) yeah i mean for for me it's certainly not sponsors but uh it's it's the people i think that helped me get started in the industry or kept me going or gave me a lot of advice um mike reedy as i said was the team manager um and he was the one that kind of said hey i'd like you to come to this race and he gave me a taste of what racing really was like back in 84 and um, you know, here I am 51 years old, still in this hobby, still talking and getting excited about, you know, watching, even, I, I watch a lot of this stuff, you know, on live RC, right. But I still get excited watching a world championship and holding my breath and saying, Oh my God, I hope Spencer and Davide don't touch, you know, that yeah. type of stuff. <laughs> and, you know, I've been doing this forever and I still get goosebumps. So, you know, Mike Reedy, Gene Husting, Roger Curtis, uh, Curtis Husting built a lot of custom stuff for me and I still work with him now. And he's been there. I think he started working at Associated when he was 15 or 14, something like that. Yeah, you say I, I don't remember what he said. 37 years or something it's, like that? It's something like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I have a employee census somewhere on my computer and he's like, you know, employee number nine or something like that. And I'm, I'm 502. Yeah. So, you know, he's been there a long time. Um, 
you know, Kent Clausen uh, helped me a ton in racing. He's, he's 10 years older than I am and he was way faster than I was. And, uh, he was the one that, you know, helped me get my cars prepared, helped, I think, get me on the team, um, in, in a big way. And, um, you know, he, he's helped me my whole life and, in, in just kind of, you know, getting stuff done. So I'd like to thank him and, you know, Cliff got me the job at Associated and, uh, Cliff and I have been good friends for since the eighties, since he joined, I was racing for Associated before he was. Um, but we've been in contact with each other since he, I think he probably started around 85 or something like that. And, uh, we've been in contact for many, many years. And, um, certainly he got me an opportunity to, to, uh, jump back, uh, with Associated and, uh, you know, got me to the point where I'm president and, uh, get to kind of oversee a lot of the stuff and watch, you know, the great teams that he built up over the years. Um, and really it's everybody at Associated, you know, they're, they're really my second family. Um, I actually, you know, I've, I've written several emails during the COVID time about you know, what we're going to do and when we're going to come back. And I had one employee stop me in the parking lot when I was in one day, he goes, you know, I just, I just want to say, I have a lot of friends that their employers are just driving them to come back to business and, you know, get back in the office and, you know, it seems like you care about my health. Thanks. And it's like, yeah, you guys are my friends too. You're not just employees that are numbers. You know, these, these are people I really, really enjoy hanging out with. And, you know, the rare opportunity that I go to a race and room with somebody, it's, it's always been fun. And, uh, you know, some of the funniest videos on my phone and stuff are, you know, Cody Numadal or somebody like that making fun of Brent Tilkey, you know, <laughs> when we're releasing the B6. And, you know, I, I really, I kind of cherish those moments. They're, they're super funny. Um, but really everybody that likes the hobby, even if you don't buy our stuff, if you're buying our competitor stuff and you're involved in the hobby and you're keeping it going, I appreciate it. Um, like I said, I've worked with almost a, a good deal of the, the people in the industry. They're all really good people. And, uh, you know, if you support your, your tracks and, and support other RC companies and, uh, I'm good with it. If you're in the hobby, then it's kind of my challenge to, uh, make something or, you know, our team to make something that you desire to buy next. And, uh, you know, that's a lot of fun. I guess, you know, we back, you know, thanks to you guys. Uh, you know, I don't, there's, there's not a lot of people after Gene, uh, Gene Husting used to document everything and talk to everybody and made the videos. You talked yeah. about the kind of the golden era. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, you know, I think Jason, it seems like you've taken up the mantle and, uh, you know, you go to a lot of tracks and what Gotti, what did you say this, this episode was what number? Uh, 216. 216. So, I mean, you've got hundreds of uh, interviews of a lot of people that have worked in industry out there that you can always go back and listen to and yeah. um, kind of learn where we were in 2000 or in years past. And, um, you know, I think that's important because it, these, these, like the gold pan chassis cars, I mean, there's going to be something that happens now that people will look back on, you know, 20 years in the future and say, ah, I remember that. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. That was cool. That's what got me into RC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I definitely appreciate it. Appreciate you and obviously all the support um, over the years. And we definitely I still enjoy it. Still like talking about it. And uh, thanks again for joining us. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, problem. Um, actually, I got a couple more questions. Well, actually, Live RC, Brandon Rohde. There's a question for you. I don't you. know that guy. Did you ever get stuck storing a real car in your garage for someone when you worked at HPI? We had to get that. I did. I didn't even know he knew that. Yeah. At the time, that's a good story. Uh, so I was at HPI and uh, the owner, Tatsuro Watanabe, I think I told you, we did pretty well with some of our products and it gave us some cash to invest in the uh, 
into new chassis, but it also gave the owner uh, some money to invest in full-scale cars. And he bought a Ferrari Enzo. Uh, it was mm-hmm. Jesse James's uh, old Ferrari Enzo. Wow. Relatively expensive car, right? And uh, he kept it in the building in our warehouse. And uh, we were going to have some construction uh, done. And uh, he was nervous about the construction guys being around this you know, $1.3 million car. <laughs> and he was out of town. Tatsuru lived part-time in Japan. He lived in Hawaii. And I just said, you know what? You can park it in my garage. It's no problem. I'll, I'll take it home and park it. So I ended up with his Enzo uh, sitting in my garage, wow. uh, sitting alongside my, I had a, a full-scale M3 race car with HPI all over it. So yeah, for about six or seven weeks, my garage looked bitching. <laughs> I, I actually, I had to call like my that. insurance company. I called my insurance company and said, Hey, listen, I'm going to park a car that's like worth $1.3 million and it's worth more than my house. Um, are you guys okay with that? And they said, yeah, it's fine. Oh, wow. Yeah. I guess you would. That, I would have never thought of calling them and asking, but yeah, that's uh dang. I would have been then, taking photos and. You didn't oh, I've the, got some. You didn't have the keys to well, it? The, the cool part was, no, I, he, he let me drive it all the way here. And then oh, uh, wow. I think it was the, the day after I parked it, his wife called me and said, um, hey, Sean, you know, Tatsura and I were talking. If you want to drive it around a little bit, go for it. Um, but Tatsura has one request. Can you please just leave traction control on? And I said, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to throw like, that. You're like, what car? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You don't want to throw that into the water. So. Yeah, and I actually, thinking, I, I actually broke it when I was taken back. Uh, it had a wing that would go up automatically at like 60 miles per hour or whatever. Yeah. And I remember pulling off the freeway and the wing stayed up. And I thought, that's weird. So I told Tatsuro, I said, I don't know, for some reason, the wing won't go back down. And uh, <laughs> it, it, it suddenly, it start, started going down later. So I didn't actually break it, but I was worried that I broke something. Dang. He gave you the, um, what, what movie was it? What'd you do? <laughs> What'd you do? To do? Yeah. It, yeah. That was a, that was cool. Yeah. So what else we got? Gotti? Oh, I wanted to get that one in there for you. So, and it's got some questions for you in here, Jason. So we can hit them up later. Okay. But yeah. So, all right, Sean, that was okay. great. Yeah. When, um, Appreciate it. That was awesome. Good stuff. Yeah. No problem. Thanks guys. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. Yep. Feel free to hang up, I guess, right? You just yeah. I'll hit leave and then you guys can make fun of me. How about that? <laughs> you can check it later on when part. we post it on live tube. Make sure we didn't trash talk you. Oh. Yeah, I'll, I'll, you're good at editing, so <laughs> that's the best part. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate it again, All Sean. Right, that was awesome, man. Look forward to having you again sometime. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yep. All right, take care. See ya. See ya. Bye-bye. All right. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> Sean Ireland, everybody. Some good stuff there. Yeah, I think, um, well, I hope what people kind of take out of that is just how much, um, how much some he's been involved in RC. Uh, I think some people, sometimes they don't realize, uh, you know, these are life, life kind of jobs, right? Like you get, yeah. people get into this stuff and uh, he's talking about being 15, 16 and, now you're 51 and uh, you've never really done anything else other than be in that business. So pretty crazy. Yeah. You, you quickly realize it's a job when you get a job in that industry, you know what I mean? You're like, you know, I was 20 some years old working at Trinity and when I started, 
you know, you think, well, this is this is this cake, you know, this is nice, this is what I've always wanted to do. And you get in there and realize it's just like a regular job. I mean, it's nine to five. Mm-hmm. But you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility, right? you gotta kick some ass or you're out the door. So get me the numbers, Gotti. Gotti, do something today, please. I'm trying to run a <laughs> business here. That's what he'd always say to me. <laughs> okay, I'll Uncle Ernie. Done. Uncle Ernie. Um, you guys were talking about drag cars earlier, and we had a question here from Will Britton. I gotta find that. Papa Wheelie. Like he was asking, what kind of tire compounds are they running in drag? We've been running a lot of golds. That's what AJ has been running. A lot of gold compounds. Working good. And are they hooping the tires? Hooping or gooping? Hooping, he has written here. No, no, no hooping. Gooping though? A- AJ hasn't hooping? been doing AJ hasn't been AJ hasn't been doing any kind of hoops or anything inside. Uh he's been running pretty traditional. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. even think he's gluing the foams. The, the races he's done well at, it's been a pretty traditional setup and mount, which I thought was has been kind of neat. Uh, I missed this one for uh, Sean, but uh, gas, one-tenth, uh, two-wheel drive truck class again. I would love to see the T6 GT. We get that. I mean, people talk about it a lot. I just did a video on YouTube about one of my favorite products of all time. is that RC10 GT, and we did a video on it, and... Yeah, and we all also had Jared Tebow kind of do a guest spot at the end about uh, the truck and what we thought it would take for that class to come back. So maybe check out that YouTube video. Uh, it's on the J Concepts page. My favorite RC cars of all time. That's GT's one of them. But we talk about that in there and what it would take to bring it back. <clears throat> Uh, you guys were talking about Richard Saxon. We have earlier. a video. We have a video. We got a video to reference. It's like we're pros, man. Yeah. Like this is this Question is like ass, and you have a video. This is, pro, this is like pro. This is like pro level stuff. Oh, damn. Uh, you guys were talking about Richard Saxton earlier. Mm-hmm. Spencer Rifkin dropped in and said, "Saxton, baby." Yeah. Uh, this is, you know, we just made a video. We just made a video about PMB and uh, there's a part of it where we're talking to Richard or I'm talking to Richard in the video. You don't see me in the video, but you can hear me. Um, and he's prepping, uh, prepping Spencer's car and he's kind of talking about what he's doing and kind of getting ahead of the, the curve is essentially what his little spot is about is, um, before the second round of qualifying, he essentially started working on the car and getting ready for the mains. He's like, I, I'm doing the bearings now. I'm doing this now because I don't have to do it then tomorrow. He's like, I'm going to get this stuff done now. And that's going to cut my workload um, in half uh, before tomorrow. And yeah, he did. A, he's uh, that's a good part of the video. So we just put that up on the, uh, the PMB video and, uh, you can see many, many spots. He's got the whole car part and uh, it, it really is using your time wisely. Uh, you know, a lot of it comes down to using your, using your time wisely and, you know, getting some of these difficult things done ahead of time. So, you you know, when time comes. Uh, Will Britton is correct in a gooping. 
but you, yeah, you did write hooping. And well, if you want me to say it correctly, Will, got to type it correctly. That's right. That's right. But, you Take know, because that. you can be hooping, you can be hooping, too, because guys will put things inside the tire like a hoop. Oh, um, well, there you go. That's a thing. That's that that that's kind of like a thing. So, but you will um, didn't even know that. So gooping, uh, if you're no prep racing, you're not supposed to put any tire traction on. <clears throat> like the the two events I went to, there's no no prep, and it's that means the track is not prepped. Oh, I'm sorry, one of the events the track was prepped, but what the other one, the track wasn't prepped, and your tires are not supposed to be prepped. So. Um, nobody was in the pits. Thought it was cool. Um, so you never heard of hooping. Now, now, you know, Will. Mm-hmm. Hooping. Get to hooping. Uh, Will also says the Hobbyplex would be an awesome, would be awesome for gas truck. He's right. Hobbyplex Raceway, they have a the- podcast out there. Check those guys out. Will does a podcast with Alex Sturgeon. I believe they do it every mm-hmm. week. Yeah, they've been doing well with it. Yeah. So gas truck at Hobbyplex. It would be great there. That'd be one of the, the good tracks to run gas truck at. <laughs> the king. I like this guy's profile pic. Oh, we're, we've got that. Billy's? Yeah, look at that. Yeah. Got the, I mean, I'm not It's like a hard musical. rock and roller there. Yeah, oh. it looks like, to me, it's... <clears throat> heavy metal? It's like... Yeah. I watched this. I was telling you before I watched this on YouTube. There's this guy named Rick Beato. Oh, yeah. That breaks uh, down the music. Is that the one that was um, Rick Beato? Yeah. And uh, on YouTube. And so awesome. He's got this thing called uh, What Makes the Song Great. And he breaks down these these songs about uh, that. That would make some great. And it's it's unbelievable what he's able to pick up on in these songs and show you how it sounds uh break he can separate he can isolate i guess he's got all the tracks for these different songs and he can isolate all the different instruments and tell you what's going on and why it's you know you might have liked the song but he's telling you exactly why it all um what it what it sounds like and he's like yeah check out this vocal you know he'll isolate just the vocals and he'll show you the vocals and he'll say hey this was pre you know he talks about how in the year like 2000 they they got a thing called pro tools Mm -hmm. where essentially you could manipulate all your music on pro tools and and uh he's like you know this was before pro tools he's like this is he's like if you're listening to something from the 70s 80s 90s you know this is like um uh a performance you know he's like listen to the singing and he'll isolate just the singing and he's like um you know he's it's unbelievable the stuff uh that you're listening to and how good these people really are or at, yeah. at music <clears throat> yeah i gave him a sub it's pretty good he's breaking down some yeah. aussie music mm-hmm. uh, rj says bag bag your no prep tires with paragon <laughs> I mean, you can do that. I mean, if you bag any kind of RC tires, I think in this era, you got to be really, you got to really watch how long you keep them in there because 
the the fumes and the aroma and that stuff <clears throat> staying on the tires it causes them to expand so um you got to be careful how much you 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 bag and goop or goop and bag goop and hooping yeah gooping and hooping uh, will says wintergreen paragon oh any kind of tire traction is just music to will's ears he just <laughs> it's like what is the um home improvement guy um what the hell is his name? Tim the Toolman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tim, what is? <laughs> That's Will when you, you mentioned tire traction. He's like, hmm? but I've gone to some of Will's tires before at a race, and he had him. He had him dialed in. He's got tires pretty dialed. Yeah, he's a man. That's why we signed him on uh, Team Rip. He's hooping and gooping before. Uh, he's hooping and gooping and repping Rip. All right, Jason, you just got back from uh, PNB. Yeah. You want to just cover that real quick for us before we head on out? Uh, Yeah, three-day race and practice is 24 hours. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So that started, we talked about with Sean, where it started Friday morning. Spencer started at 6 a.m. And uh, a lot of guys were... Uh, I don't think Spencer did this, but I know Dakota kind of like Dakota did sort of the opposite schedule. He started later, but practiced later. So at PMB, you can start practice at 6 a.m. and qualifying starts 6 a.m. on Saturday morning. So you can practice all of Friday, all the way up to you can practice for 24 hours, all the way, all the way up until qualifying starts. So there's people that do that. Uh, there's people that get their practice in and then they leave because they're like, you know, I'm not, I, I'd rather have sleep than all this additional practice. So uh, there's people that do that too. So anyway, um, at you know, at the end of the day, uh, Dakota won two classes. He won Truggy and he won E-Buggy and Jared Tebow won Nitro Buggy. Um, I'd say of all the, the mains, I thought the e-buggy main was going to be complete chaos and a total disaster because it was a single 10 minute main. And I don't know if you were, we talked about it a little bit in the chat, Gotti, how they had the, the Joker lane. Yeah. Three Remember Joker, you saw the three a one Joker lane, but you could do it three times oh, in okay. a 30 minute race. Right. So that was sort oh, of the, the flashing lights that were driving me yeah, crazy. So you, yeah. You were seeing the flashing lights, but that was the Joker lane. Okay. And what oh, they so did that, is they. So that was set up there on purpose like that. Yeah, that was set up on purpose. Gotcha. Okay. Cause I was like, man, that's gotta be distracting. You know, when I was up there and the guys were driving, it didn't really bother me, hmm. but, okay. uh, but I, I could see when, like how you were watching it. Uh, yeah. That's all you would say. And I'm like, Oh my God. Drive me yeah. Crazy. Like it would be distracting. Yeah. Okay. Well, but uh, so, um, in the e-buggy main, you could you could do the Joker lane one time for because it was ten minutes. Thirty minute main, uh, like the Nitro buggy or Truggy, uh, you could do the Joker lane three times. So, mm. really, what it does is it kind of I'm not going to say it, um, you know, voids like the qualifying position, but in a way because nobody is supposed to hit the Joker lane on the first lap so the first lap you're under you have to do the regular track 
But the second lap around, you could start doing the Joker lane. And if you want to do it three laps in a row, you could do the Joker line three laps in a row and save almost eight seconds each lap, which is huge, Hmm. you know, eight seconds. So what was happening is you say your TQ, you come around the first lap, you're leading, you go to hit the Joker lane, the second lap. And say you didn't want to, as the leader or the TQ, you didn't want to do the Joker line, but somebody else did. They blow right by you and they're in the lead. So that's what happening is um, people can kind of set up their own strategy of when they, when they want to run the Joker lap. But, you know, it's a little bit confusing to me because it's also kind of frustrating. Uh, Yeah, he did will and he uh he got penalized for it. but uh i don't like the joker lap thing i think it's too much of a gimmick because there was too much chaos like when we were the, the truggy main the 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 truggy main went pretty well jimmy babcock was announcing and he was really really good at saying okay uh you know let's just say uh, Spencer Rivkin used his Joker lap, uh, you know, right. Uh, Joe, Born, Joe Bornhorst just used one. So the drivers kind of had this mental picture of, all right, well, this is the position I'm in, but so-and-so hasn't run the Joker lap Joker lane. Cause I, as I was watching, I was kind of trying to approach it. Like I was a racer and, and the truggy main I thought went decent, decently well. Cause he was keeping everybody really updated on the, so during the truggy main, Dakota waited all the way until the last four minutes to use his last two Joker laps. And Dakota was TQ. So he's running like fourth place. And so um, about 10 minutes or maybe more to go, you start looking at the leader and you're like, okay, well, this guy's used all of his Joker laps. Second place, how is he doing? Oh, he's used most of his already too. Third place he's used. And you're thinking, all right, well, Dakota's in fourth what where's he at? And then, and then you'd hear Jimmy was like, Dakota's only used one Joker lap. Uh-huh. And you're like, Holy crap. Like, it's like, Holy crap. He's in fourth. He's only, he, he's still got two more jokers he can use. And, and he was being so patient. He was just pushing the crap out of the truck, running as fast as he could trying to catch everybody and just being so patient to use these Joker lanes. And I'm thinking, is he ever going to use these things? Like it was just going on forever. Like, I mean, he was, had so much patience and finally with like three minutes to go, uh, finally with like three minutes to go, he, he hits the Joker, the Joker lane, boom, he's in the lead. And so, cause it, you know, you gained, um, uh, eight seconds essentially. So he uses one Joker lap, boom, he's in the lead with like under three minutes to go. So this whole 30 minute main, Dakota's like kind of in the mid pack, like he's yeah. running fast, but he hasn't used all of his Joker laps. So you kind of had to, as a racer, you kind of had to figure that into your equation as how you were doing. And um, I could see it being kind of confusing as a driver. Cause you're thinking, all right, well, I'm in the lead. I've used all my Joker laps. And then you're thinking, all right, well, who hasn't used theirs? And, and, you know, am I really doing as well as I think I am? Or is this guy just going to pass me? And that's exactly what happened is Dakota had two more to go. He saved them all the way until the end. And the only reason he was able to do this 
is because he was hauling ass. Mm. So he used he he saved these two Joker laps till the last three or four minutes, and boom, he's in the lead. And then he uses his next one. He's boom. Now he's got a huge gap. Like all of a sudden, he's like eight seconds in the lead. So he went from fourth to eight seconds up on second place because he had these these Joker laps. And it's like it happens and just you know it happened in two laps uh, right at the end. And so. It's but, really hard to manage. Jimmy Babcock did a good job of keeping track of the truggy one. The buggy um, one, the announcer's name was uh, – I, I like him. I actually like his voice and his technique uh, better than Jimmy. Um, but Jimmy, I think, being uh, a really experienced, he was kind of given that that update. But um, I think it was Sean. They call him Sexy Leg. But um, he wasn't doing as many updates in the buggy main. I was so lost. Oh, you didn't know who, yeah. In the buggy main. Who, yeah, like, who and it's like, through. you're yeah. just looking around, and, and and for some reason, buggy is so intense to begin with, and guys are just on the edge, like, you know, they're, the, the cars didn't handle the, the bumps very well, um, and guys are flipping all over the place, hitting the joker line, uh, just out of random times, people doing it together, and they're crashing, and... Um, <clears throat> It was really confusing. And then in the end, Jared Tebow like had the best race. I think he managed the best race. He had the he did good joker laps. He did a uh, a good job with his pits. He he wasn't the fastest lap time wise, but he had the least amount of issues. And um, it's probably a race I've seen mayfield have more issues than i ever have had in a long time where it just seemed like nothing was really going great for him he got stuck under a pipe once like a pipe came loose and it was like flapping before the whoops and he's coming through there he's he thought he was clear and the flapping pipe like sucked him in then he was underneath the pipe and i mean that that killed him i mean it was like that lap had to be like it had to be 10 seconds right there and and he still was competitive. I mean, he at one point he was still close. Um, and then we had Seth Van Dalen running so well, he actually passed Mayfield on the last lap for second. Uh, Ryan put a crazy pass on him maybe a few minutes earlier where they were going down the straightaway. And I think Ryan went to the outside and he was just like, well, I'm either going to pass him right now or my car is going to be in the wall. And he just held on the throttle longer than I think you would normally hold it on. And he just, he's like, I, well, what he said is he goes, I NASCAR him. He's like, <laughs> I got up behind him. He goes, I was in the draft and I just went, right and he's like, and then I just pulled right back in front of him. And it was insane. Uh, uh, it was a ballsy, a ballsy pass, but you know that he got that great one on him. And then Seth passed him on the last lap back for second. So uh, Jared was not gone, but, <clears throat> he was a few seconds up on the guys. And so then Seth got second, Mayfield got third and uh, that that was chaotic. Uh, Just cars everywhere, flipping, crashing. Spencer was um, doing well, but then his wing mount broke. So he had no wing on the back and that kind of hurt him. I actually thought Spencer was going to win. He had such a great start. He, he like made this is to me, it looked like a split second decision. Decision. They're going over the back jump. He saw the two guys racing with him turn in to do the whoops, and he went, "I'm going Joker Lane," and he just goes straight through the Joker Lane. He has 
he had like a big lead and I'm like, Oh man, that was the decision of the race. Like, and I thought he was gone and, um, he ended up uh, having too many mistakes that wing mount broke, uh, just cause it was so brutal out there. And yeah. was the Joker lane difficult though? Like, cause it's supposed to be, no, no. Yeah. It was like a sweeping turn. Oh, I thought it was supposed to be a difficult section of the track and you really didn't want to hit that. Cause when you said you cut the, off eight seconds, I was like eight seconds. Yeah. Well, the reason it was so fast was, uh, the section you were avoiding was the whoops, which was the toughest part of the track. So instead of going through uh, a section where you're going like this, right. You know, and then you turn, you avoided all that and you just went straight through, uh, okay. through the sweeper. It was, it's fun to watch as a racer. I don't think I would like the Joker lane hmm. because it's a little too gimmicky for me, but but it does add some strategy to the race. It did yeah, and and you're wondering what's going to happen and who's using it. And like I said, Dakota did a truck where uh, he used he saved two of them till the very end, and he went from fourth to first. <clears> like, and uh, I actually think he could have won that race without using two Joker lanes. I think he was fast enough where he almost caught up to the point where he was going to go in the lead anyway. But uh, that would have been really uh, kind of special. Yeah. But, uh, uh, Isaac says, "How uh, I could see how confusing it could be not knowing who you're battling. Oh, yeah, it's totally random. Like one lap you're battling with, you know, Jared Tebow. And then uh, next lap is he's gone. You know, he's not nowhere near you anymore. And some other guy is by you and it really is chaotic. And I think it caused the guys to, to have more crashes because they're concerned, right? You're concerned who's, who's using what and where they are. And, um, but watching people like this, I think. Yeah. And then e-buggy, I, I was thinking it was going to be a, a disaster because 10 minutes, everyone was going to go for it use their joker lap on the second lap and and uh but um dakota was tq and he just ran a perfect race i don't know if there was maybe had one crash towards the end when it was kind of locked up and spencer drove a very good race too in second and i thought the e-buggies looked better than the nitro and i was really surprised by that uh that late in the day but uh dakota ran an awesome race and uh, it's impressive, friend. He got two wins, and uh, Jared won the other race. Uh, we'll ask uh, earlier, why, why couldn't you use the uh, jerk lane on the first lap? <clears throat> I think it's... I don't know if there was a technical reason that I can remember, other than maybe the minimum lap. I don't know if there was a, a technical reason. But <clears throat> they closed it. Yeah, you couldn't do it on the first lap. Uh, you had to wait until after at least the first lap. And what happened with Jackson, I think he just got caught up in the moment, which I, you know, I've done similar things racing before uh, where they change. Um, uh, I was running a race back in the nineties in Alabama where they had, you go down the straightaway and there was like a, a split lane. So you'd go down the, the straightaway. There's the weirdest track. It was like, uh, went away from you so the straightaway was coming at us we turned and then there was you go into the infield and there was a split lane and you could either go inside or outside well i was tq 
And what they told us is for the first lap, we are going to um, open the gate and the very first lap of the main, you cut the split lane off. So we'd come down the straightaway and you cut the split lane off and you, and you turned in to the, the bank turn. So I did that on the first lap and I was leading and the second lap, I just, I was so caught up in the race and what I was doing. I didn't turn in again. I went straight right into the board <laughs> and I just crushed the front end of my RC 10. I stayed out there and I did okay, but I didn't win. But I always think like they had other tracks where this has happened too, where they open and close a section. And that's what the Joker lane thing kind of reminded me of what Jackson kind of did. What it reminded me of is the, where people get, um, you, you just, you, you, with two options, you, you just have a, a, a fade of, of, um, what you're supposed to do at that moment. And you're committed so early, right? Especially the race I was in, uh, had a long straightaway with just one turn and, and you were just so committed and you don't really feel it until you're like a few feet away and it's too late. But I'm sure as Jackson did the tabletop or the, I'm sorry, the back jump and he's turning in and he's thinking I'm going Joker lane. I'm sure three feet before he hit the Joker lane, he's thinking I'm not supposed to drive through here, mm. but it was too late. And so, and that was the rule. You just couldn't do it on the first lap, which made it. Uh, and I think that's where he kind of was, was at with it. But it's sometimes it's hard in the moment when you're just racing and you're not thinking about all these little things. I think sometimes it's hard to um, get all that stuff right. Uh, Corey Jordan, left tire salute. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I know we are in a crazy time right now with everything that's going on. But how can RC? How can RC have more spectators at these big races like PNB? Well, that's a perfect race for spectators because they have a ton of seats you can sit in. It's a. It's probably the nicest building besides Silver State that we race in all year long. I would say Silver State's the nicest because it's in a casino, but. Um, this, this building is definitely the second nicest building and they have really nice seating in there. I think, I don't know. This is a whole different conversation, but I don't think RC is quite as appealing as a spectator sport as people think it could be. Um, I think as a, as a spectator, it's only fun in short bursts and to really try to charge people, not necessarily charge people, but to usher people in and sit down in these seats and watch one of these races. First of all, they don't know what you're racing for. They don't know um, how difficult it is. I think everybody thinks they can do it when they see it the first time. I think everybody, you know, walks in and says, Oh, this would be fun. I'd like to get into this but they don't realize how hard it really is. You know, the, even the, the bad drivers that they're seeing are actually really good at it. Um, but so there's no respect, I think for the level of talent, they just see it as a toy. Um, it, it's not until you're at a place where we all are, we've tried it and we've been down the road that you can have a respect for the top level people and how they make it look. 
And to bring that to the average person, that respect level of these are the pros, um, is tough. And, and then having the, the, it has to be impressive enough for them to stick around and they like the crashes people that walk in and watch these things. Yeah. They like seeing the crashes. And to me, I, I don't like the crashes cause I'm a racer. I am like, I want this thing. That's what I didn't like about drag racing. My car is I crashed it so much. I hated that. Um, I want it to look good and I don't, as a racer, I don't want to crash. Um, so the impressive part to me is when you're not making the mistakes and you're not crashing, which is unfortunately the thing that people walk in and they like to see is the crashes. So uh, we're kind of after two different things. So maybe people, what they really want to see is a stunt show, <laughs> not a race, you know, that to them uh, walking in and watching a stunt show would probably be more appealing in seeing yeah. You could see me do like six backflips with some truggy. They would think that's the coolest thing ever Oh yeah, definitely. as a spectator. But to me as a racer, I want to see uh, the perfect main. You know, I want to see the guy. I want to see the Dakota 10 minute uh, e-buggy race where he looked great. You know, as a racer, that's what I want to see. So it's a little different um, there. But having said that, there was people watching. Um in order to get people in there, you have to give them the seats. Uh, the best spectator race that was ever, that ever happened that I'm aware of is they had a race in Idaho called, uh, ironically, it was called the Manufacturers Cup, and um, they there was a they they played some games with the people a little bit in terms of what did they say they. They gave away tickets to the event, but they like, it's like they said that they had value, you know, like there was a $20 ticket, but they were giving them away. There was, there was something, there was something fun they did with it to make it seem like, you know, Hey, we could be selling these tickets for $20 or I, I don't know what it was, but anyway, they filled the stands hmm. and uh, there's pictures of this race of some things online. There's a great one of Mayfield holding his trophy where he won Truggy. And um, so he won Truggy and he's holding up this trophy and the crowd is packed. Like it, it was amazing, but they, they had a, this, they had this event two years in a row and they put a lot of effort in it. The guy's name was Matt. And then I know Gary Guest was involved and somebody else. Gary Guest was the announcer. He played to the crowd. He kind of announced to the crowd, not to the drivers, I believe. And it was super successful getting people in the seats. They gave it away, of course. And, you know, uh, and they made the guys race for something. Mayfield won an ATV when he won the race. Like, it was a really cool thing. He won a quad, like a four-wheeler. Uh, when he won Truggy and Jared Tebow won Buggy and won a dirt bike. Jeez. And um, and so they brought it right out to him. I, be I Yeah, they, I believe they brought it out to him in the crowd. They had this cool trophy. That was the best spectator race I've seen. Um, and then we've done some monster truck things uh, like at Monster Jam where we we're, <clears throat> we're just happened to be in a great location. That's what that was all about yeah. is like when, you're in, when you're in – yeah, when you're in a great location where there's people already there watching, um, 
that that was and 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 it's tough because it's just like I said earlier. They like the crashes. They like the flips. Um, but getting them to go that extra mile to actually buy what you're using. Mm-hmm. What happened? Ah, oh, we were losing you a little bit. So, oh, uh, so that's kind of where I was going with that. I, I think we can get spectators involved, uh, but it has to be a little convenient. PNB has a great facility for it, but there'd have to be something else going on there to get people, I think, in the seats. Uh, that the reason that they came, and then you kind of, as a secondary benefit, you could get them in the seats. That's kind of how these monster truck events are that we do, where there's spectators. And um, I mean, last year I was in front of more people I, than I've ever been while I'm racing because I was racing the monster trucks. We did the the Bigfoot Open House, we did the Monster Jam World Finals, we did an Open House or a Hall of Fame. We did like three or four events last year where they're all in front of people. Uh, the most I've ever done, but there was something else going on that kind of brought those people there. So that's yeah. timing things like that makes a big difference. Uh, just a couple more things here. We'll just end this here. Uh, Alex changed the track. Okay. This is Will Britton. Uh, Sturgeon changed the track one time on my first lap on a new layout. I ran into a pipe where the track used to be. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Oh, man. Uh, that was something a little more common in the old days because uh, there were some tracks where they used to build, they'd have an oval, and then they'd build the road course track as part of the, you'd use like the infield yeah. and then you'd come out on the oval. Well, that's how that's kind of how the, that's how the Savannah track was. And when they would run the mains, they would open the pipe or the board and you would go all the way around the sweeper, all the way to the back stretch, And then you'd come into the infield. Yep. Well, and then they would close it and then you would dip into the infield early. So for the mains, they'd let you go all the way around. But, and that made it tough because even though you were qualifying and you were going into the infield and doing the track normal for that one lap in the mains, when they let you go all the way around and come all the way back you wanted to go straight again, um, and it was tough. I know the, the the race they had there, several guys did it, then uh, big-name drivers, just, you know, weird deal. Isaac says, maybe put them in fire suits to add the element of danger. <laughs> <laughs> or set them on fire. You know, I think it'd be a good idea is, like, at these races like Motorama or something where you get these spectators that have no clue what's going on or who's what, maybe come out, like hand out a little program to these guys that, you know, has Mayfield and Spencer and gives you their racing history and stuff. So you don't, you know who these guys are and mm-hmm. what they're about. A little backstory. You know what I mean? What the hell race did we do? That was like that. I think Motorama would be uh-huh. a good spot for that. Cause I know sitting there listening to people are all confused and who's who and what's what, and why are they, qualifying like this you know what i mean like the if mark qualifying people really don't understand any of that but back in the day motorama used to just be ready set go and uh maybe a race like that should do that for the spectators just my opinion i think it sounds i know you guys don't like that i know racers don't like that but for something like motorama where you're getting 10,000 plus people on a weekend there visiting. It's a good thing to do. 
right, guys, are we finished? Is this 216 over with? Yeah, we've gotten to three hours, so we're done. Oof. Killing it. Gotta go. It's a late dinner tonight, Jason. I know. I haven't had anything. All right, guys, we appreciate everybody joining actually, us. Actually, awesome. I was actually show. prepared, but I wasn't going to eat. What is it? I got this from Starbucks earlier. It's a, I got. Uh, it's, a, it's a little kid's meal. Dino we, nuggets. No, these are the carrots. This oh. is the <laughs> peanut butter peanut butter sandwich. This was oh. the Thomas meal. Thomas used to get these. Oh. Uh, when he was working with us, that was his dinner, and uh, I think it might be my dinner well, tonight. You, yeah, to you honest. cracked that open on your way home. Well, I was gonna do it earlier, but then I was like, "We're doing this thing live, and then we're talking to Sean uh, Ireland." And I just started eating a peanut butter sandwich while we're interviewing Sean. <laughs> Chomping down on those carrots. Carrot, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, be like, "Geez, am I boring you over here?" It's like, man, is this the unprofessionals? Yeah. All right, guys, two sixteen in the books. Don't forget, tell a friend. Like the page, Radio Impound. Head over to YouTube. We also broadcast on YouTube Live. YouTube.com slash Radio Impound. Give us a sub there. Sub. We're on Instagram like now. Rick like you did to Rick Beato. Yeah. Give us a sub over there. Head over to Instagram. We just started an Instagram page. People were beating me up I know. Up I like that. the Instagram page. You do? Yeah. yeah I, put, I like how you made the, the little clip of uh you know what the the thing was and he had a that was cool i, I do thought little you did audio a snippets for each episode for you guys so get you a little give you something there and make you download the show and listen uh so yeah <laughs> you can now watch the show live you can watch the replay on youtube and facebook and then we also have the audio version hitting everywhere amazing so, man we are really doing it <laughs> All right, don't forget to go visit jconcepts.com. Send all your friends over there. If they're using something else, beat the hell out of them and show them the way. Paul Wynn says jconcepts.net. Maybe I said .com. I'm sorry. Anyway, catch you guys later. Stay safe, everyone. We'll see you.